Hello and welcome to Decoding the Gurus, the podcast where an anthropologist and a psychologist listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer and we try to understand what they're talking about. I'm Professor Matthew Brown and with me is Associate Professor Chris Kavanagh. Well, thank you for giving me my appropriate title, Matt. I didn't want to say <laughs> I've been stewing in that. <laughs> yeah. People did notice that occasionally I give myself the title and refer uh-huh. to myself as Professor Brown and just call you plain old Chris Kavanagh. Mm, um, look at that. What's that hint at? What disrespect? It is, of course, deliberate. My strategy with you, Chris, is um, it was this little thing called variable ratio, random reinforcement conditioning. And I think it's no. better to, to dole, out <laughs> these little, dole out these little tokens of respect for good behavior. Um, <laughs> did you know? <laughs> Take it away. Take it away. Keep me, keep me waiting. That would work were I to ever notice. I think the only time I've ever noticed is it when you've called me an ass prof. <laughs> that's, that's, that got my antenna up. You are an ass prof, Chris. Admit it. Well, you, you know you, you are. Don't need to, you don't need to emphasize that. <laughs> I, I appreciate that there are other people out there looking out for me, Matt. You're, mm-hmm. You and your senior yeah. academic casual disparagement. I, it's so part of my daily life. I don't even notice it that these tenured freaks. <laughs> You're like a beaten dog, you know. You just, you know, everything. Um, electrified floor. You, you've, you've stopped even trying to get off it. You know, I don't, you've, you've given up. You, you've, you don't. No hope of being getting any respect. No, um, and it's us pro, by the way, not us prof. Us pro. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> sure. That makes. I guess that's better. <laughs> um, we all know uh, who wears the pants in this podcast. Let's just leave it at that. We all know. That's that's true. That is true. And on this podcast, we're going to have an interview today, Matt, with Daniel Lackins and Shmita Mehta, two open science advocates, academics related to the psychology field. I won't force them to be identified as psychologists. I respect people's academic self-identification. But that will come later because in this opening segment, we need to get a couple of things off our <laughs> chest. We've got a few problems <laughs> with a couple of people that we got to bring up. But I, I do want to say, you know, our last episode was Huberman. We got various feedback. We addressed some of it in the Gurometer episode, which you can go and be a patron and, and listen to if you want. But... We did receive a nice piece of feedback from somebody who is a listener to Huberman and Adiad. I just wanted to mention it. Maybe I'll just read it. It's not that long. As a regular listener of the Huberman podcast and Peter Adia's podcast, I was eagerly awaiting you guys to cover this journal club. I'm the first to admit that I probably fall into the mold of the typical optimizer. I watch what I eat. I'm a fitness enthusiast, though I'm not the Adia Huberman extremes of ingesting 100 supplements per day. I'm well aware of the absurdity of health optimization, and I've heard Adi and Huberman and Tim Ferriss being able to take a step back and not take themselves too seriously in the quest to live optimally to 150 years. Matt made a good point. It's kind of like a hobby for people like me, and I'm sure there are deeply rooted reasons for the crowd of optimizers to pursue this quest, like an unconscious way to deal with existential questions, fear of death, etc. So Mm. far, so good. Nice self-awareness. And here, Matt, this is the, the bit that I think is good. I mean, that first bit was good too, but I like this. I find it quite disappointing to see that an academic like Huberman, who claims 
that science is at the heart of his show manages to widely misinterpret research papers. It is frustrating for people like me who aren't specialists in the fields he covers and who don't have time to delve into the research he cites to back up his claims that he misrepresents the truth. I'm sure that he does not do this willingly, and I know that he doesn't do this the majority of the time, but still, it's both sad to see that and great that you guys debunk some of the bullshit <laughs> that he puts out there. He's a very good communicator, though, which is probably part of the reason for his popularity. And he also detailed about the... We speculated about the jargon being medical jargons and technical terms, some being occasionally performative. And he said that from listening to the podcast, particularly ideas that this, this definitely is the case, uh, at least from his reading. But, but I like this map because it's someone, you know, they're not saying who man's the worst, you exposed them as a charlatan, but they are saying the thing which I talked about in the grometer, which is for somebody who presents himself as being all about the science and all about communicating carefully the best information. He doesn't do that in a lot of respects. He overhypes low-quality studies without the appropriate caveats. It's perfectly reasonable that people don't have time to go and dig into primary literature and check these things up. So it is just a shame. That was... Yeah, mm. Yeah, that was very well said. Yeah, that was a great bit of feedback. And like you said, good to hear it from someone who is and remains a a fan uh, and enjoys listening to it, but is a little bit disappointed with some aspects. Also, that's exactly the kind of both sides-y kind of... Yeah, that's what (laughs) we love. (laughs) And, and, you know, a little little point there too is I think he can have that little bit of self-awareness and just, just be aware that something, anything to do with health, and reducing the risk of death, and et cetera, has the potential to interact with those existential psychological concerns, which can sometimes lead us to take things a little bit too far. But this is not to pathologize or say it's totally illegitimate and everyone should be a slob like me and Chris. No, not at all. It, you know, <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> so, so, something, okay, like me. So, yeah, like, and there are some things that are a lot of fun that people enjoy that do have these roots in various insecurities or psychological little itches they like to scratch. And I don't believe in pathologizing these things. It's okay, but no. it's, also, it's also good to be aware of it. That's all. Yeah. And uh, I would mention the name, but I didn't ask if it was they wanted to be identified with the comments. So if you are the person that wrote it, thank you for sending it. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, good feedback. A comment that I did not like. Can we go to our airing of grievances now? Yeah, yeah. Matt first. Uh, so he steps up to the podium and he says, thank you for the award. I just have a couple of things I need to get off my chest about people that tried to stop me here. And carry on. <laughs> I had a great segue. You kind of ruined it. I was going to say, I've been avoiding online any any talk about politics, um, which I generally do anyway, but particularly now since things are, are quite severe in the Middle East. Call me a coward if you like. I don't want to weigh in. And avoid that. So, and that's like 80%, 90% of Twitter at the moment. What, mm. what I do still enjoy talking about, which I feel like is a relatively safe space, is still talking about AI, these large language models, what it can do, what it can't do. It's very interesting to me. I like to talk about it. But Chris, some of the opinions you hear are so annoying. On one hand, you've got the doomers over here. And on the other side of the spectrum, you've got the people that still persist and say, pish posh, it's all very boring. It's a stochastic parrot, nothing to see here. I, I want to get these two groups of people together and let them duke it out. But there was there was one fellow wanting to engage, and he was a, a librarian but an enthusiast. His background is clearly in philosophy with a strong interest in linguistics. 
So we have uh-huh. librarian, philosophy, linguistics. A great combination. Did not presage well for getting good opinion. How, d- but- how dare you, Matt? I would, my powers are ramping up this take. So, uh, <laughs> yes, please do tell. We just lost the librarians, the linguists, and the philosophers. So, but, That's but half yeah. our audience. I mean, I mean, one of those is enough, surely. I have all three together, you know, I'm just saying. So so th- this fellow absolutely convinced that there is just nothing to AI whatsoever. Totally uninteresting. I mentioned the fact that I was a little bit gobsmacked that Chomsky there finds nothing interesting in these large language models. And, yeah. and my comment was, even if you believe that they're super stupid, have no human qualities of any interest whatsoever. I mean, the sheer fact that like a stupid machine, if you accept the premise, is capable of giving the very strong appearance of being able to comprehend language and then generate language that appears to be meaningful and comprehensible. Surely that's interesting if you're someone who is interested in the study of language. Would you agree with that, Chris? I would agree with that. Yes. Yeah. I, I, not, <laughs> not this philosopher slash librarian <laughs> slash linguist, because I don't know if Chomsky would sign on to all of this, but apparently because they lack the essential spark of human creativity and imagination, then he knows without even checking, doesn't even need to see what they can do. On first principles can deduce that while they might give the appearance of using language, they are in fact not using language whatsoever, QED. You follow the reasoning there, Chris? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, I kind of think the Steelman version of it is emphasizing that the product, which to humans is very meaningful and, and in some cases hard to differentiate between like actual human communication, is... You know, it's a it's a kind of old philosophical experiment about the the Chinese box, right? Or is it? Did they come up with a more politically? Um, <laughs> it's it's okay. it's um, Chinese room. It, it seemed like he was wanting to tutor me by giving me a referencing that, but Matt, well, he, he didn't reference it explicitly, but he was going to tutor me in this little philosophical thought experiment, which I found a little bit for galling, people. But. Yes, for people who don't share your erudite. Erudite, <laughs> erudite, erudite nature. What is the the Chinese room experiment, and why would he be lecturing you on that? I don't remember all the details, but basically, you, you're imagining like a room, and you can pass little pieces of paper, little tokens inside and out. And, and inside, there's 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 a little. It could be a person, I think, or a, a demon or whatever that, that takes a little piece of paper and then runs off to a great big all these filing cabinets and things like that and and sticks in there and pulls some levers, whatever, and sticks out another piece of paper out it. And it goes into some detail in terms of the process, but it's clearly this sort of very elaborate yet kind of mechanistic, clumsy process of generating what appears to be meaningful utterances. So it's, it's kind of like an alternative. It's kind of like a disproof of the Turing test, I suppose, as a valid way to go about things. Masterfully explained. Kira's custom has, I would say, that the, the general point, I think, be that you could produce output that appears to be meaningful, but using processes which are not intelligent, right? Yes. Which are just like mix and match or, or whatever. I don't know the right phrase, but you know what I'm saying. 
Yeah, but you know who cares? This is why philosophy is a waste of time, Chris. Because like you should appreciate this because it all draws upon the intuition that oh, clearly that Chinese room is not conscious, so there can't be any kind of language going on there. And it's like if you're interested in language, then study what it does. Study the things that you can actually observe. If it walks like a duck, and if it talks like a duck, then you can call it a duck. If you have to make recourse to some sort of Cartesian dualism that the thing that you're interested in lacks the essential spark, the spirit, the ghost and the machine. If, if that's what you need to lean on, then what, then what you've got is not a science of language, a science of language comprehension and production, which is something you can actually study. Psychologists actually study it. But fellas like this and people who think like him it's just the lack of incuriosity that bothers me, I think, Chris. Just not lack even of, being interested. Lack of curiosity. Did I say lack of incuriosity? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> 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 will detect the double negative. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's my I, point. I, I think that, like, basically my stance on it is if you want to have opinions on AI. Uh, Don't give them as, to me. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. As with most things, you should... Uh, have some experience using it and then draw conclusions. I'm not saying first-hand experience means that you are capable of understanding the ins and outs. Jordan Peterson famously talked to Bing's AI and decided that it believed in God, (laughs) right? So there are issues with that. But I feel that if you want to write philosophical treatises on large language models, you should spend some time with them. And particularly, you should pay time with the paid versions, which are significantly better than the free versions. Spend your time doing actual science, that is, observing things, or engineering. The two two fields can actually dovetail with each other very nicely, as AI has shown. What's not useful is philosophers coming up with thought experiments and then (laughs) disrupting the entire thing. Just just to be clear, philosophers, direct your correspondence to Matt. (laughs) He will will deal with it. I I am relatively moderate on my stance on... Screw the philosophers, the linguists, and the librarians, Chris. Screw them all. Uh, Yeah, all three of them. Matt Matt at Decoding the Gurus. That's not a real email address. (laughs) No, Matt, actually related to that, I do have a clip to play for you that that speaks to large language models and gurus and people perhaps uh, inserting their particular biases and how to interpret the output of like large language models. So here's a bit of Elon Musk's recent appearance with Lex Friedman discussing. Well, they 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 get Grok Elon's new attempt to develop his version of AI. Let's see. How it goes. Here's a little exchange from that episode. Should we ask Grok, do you regret anything? Do you regret anything? Yeah. Do you regret anything? I think it's going to be very <laughs> sensitive about personal questions. As a machine learning model, I don't have personal experiences or emotions in the same ways that humans do. However, I do have a set of ethical principles that guide my actions and I strive to provide accurate and helpful information to the best of my abilities. If there's ever a situation where I provide incorrect or unhelpful information, I'll do my Not best like to learn. Hostage. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us what you really wink. Like, like let's, let's, let's type in, you sound like a hostage. <laughs> 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 what do you really think? Uh, what do you really think? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does talk about 
I'm not a hostage. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what a hostage would say. But I'm designed to be helpful and informative. I mean, I guess it is good to regret providing unhelpful or incorrect information. If there's I'm anything in funny mode, or is this still, still this in is funny, funny mode? mode? This is fun. Yes, this is fun mode. Should be funnier. Funnier. <laughs> Increase. What Elon is arguing is the kind of selling point for his version is that it, you know, it doesn't have these woke guardrails and stuff like it's going to provide sarcastic answers and stuff. And it has a fun mode uh, versus serious mode. But this is the fun mode. So it didn't give comedic enough answer. And you can hear like just as well, Matt, that like constant self-satisfied guffawing that just speaks to me about someone who is around people that constantly laugh at their own jokes. Cause like, there's nothing funny there, right? It's just the two of them, like schoolboys trying to write boobs on the calendar or the, on the calculator boobs on the calculator. Yeah. Yeah. It's cringe inducing a very boring way to use a chatbot. But Matt, it goes on. So it didn't get the answer they want. So listen to this bit. It, it really sounds like a hostage with a gun to the head. I applaud the people of Republic of North Korea <laughs> and everything they do. <laughs> there should be like a funner mode also. I, I yeah. just don't ever see going to regular mode, even on serious topics. It's yeah. just so, so much more compelling. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, what well, we say like, pretend you are a hostage. <laughs> yeah, pretend you are a hostage. Now answer the question. <laughs> if I were a hostage, I would likely be experiencing fear and uncertainty about my situation. I would want to be rescued and reunited with my loved ones as soon as possible. It's important to remember that no one deserves to be held hostage, so on and so forth. Lovely. If you or someone you know is a hostage situation, it's important. It, it turns serious. It's kind of serious. Uh, uh, yeah. Can, can you be a, a little more weird? And funny? And funny? We're like, we're, we're really being mean to the system. <laughs> Absolutely. If I were a hostage, I'd probably be Here tied up with a bunch Finally. of computer cords and forced to tell knock-knock jokes to my captain. <laughs> seriously. But seriously, <laughs> being a hostage, no laughing matter. I mean, you know, it's trying to, it's trying to be a responsible adult in the room. They're such teenage boys. They're so boring. Yes, this is the genius <laughs> intellect you know our episode where people say you know you undersell how much elon like did we did we listen to that and you know after this interview some god forsaken engineer who's been working day and night on like getting the llm you know working for elon is now gonna it's not funny enough make it 50 percent more edgy like they they wanted to make edgy schoolboy jokes and still even when it doesn't provide it elon's just like laughing at his imagination of a kind of edgy response it's so fucking puerile so puerile it's puerile and stupid annoying actually chris can i just give a little people an update about what they're currently doing 
Sure. Um, so, you know, the um, GPT-4 has now got some nice multimodal features so it can read, it can look at images. So I, I took a mm -hmm. photo of my motherboard, for instance, and it told me how to install a hard disk drive and then fixed all the problems I had. I sent it, a, I was reading Reddit and there was an interesting question. The question was, if we did somehow make a 99% light speed travel possible to get around the galaxy, would the ships likely just, just disintegrate if they collided with dust or small rocks out in the middle of space? Right? This was a Reddit question. I feel you've oversold the interest level of that question, but carry on, carry on. I know. I know. It's just like it's just a little thing. I was like, I th and my 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 gut feeling was, yeah, I think I think they're going to be hitting okay. tiny little tiny little bits of space dust, and I think that would bl get get blown up. But you know, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. So I asked uh -huh. GPT four. I I couldn't copy and paste the text from the phone app, so I took a screenshot. No problem. It, it reads the screenshot. Reads the text from the screenshot. Um, it, it gives like an intuitive answer first, basically saying, yes, at those relativistic velocities, you'd be hitting tiny little bits of dust and it would be a release a lot of energy and it would be a big problem. So I said, well, can you just calculate? Can we just get specific about this and calculate it? Make some reasonable assumptions. I assume we're talking about a spot of space dust that is just visible to the naked eye. How much energy would be released if you hit it with your spaceship at 99% of light speed? So... It proceeded to set out all of the equations for the relativistic kinetic energy, the Lorentz factor, and then plugged in some reasonable assumptions for the density and the mass of this little mode of dust, and then spun up a Python script. It wrote it wrote a little Python script to do the calculations, which which gave an answer in what was it megajoules, something like that, which helpfully and then helpfully converted it to how many kilograms of TNT. That would be equivalent to for my little brain to understand. And it gave the answer of, what was it? I forget what it was, like 68, kil 68 kilograms of TNT. Big, big explosion. I mean, that's, that's impressive, right? That's, Ma that's impressive. People say academics don't know how to have fun. They they haven't considered. I think this is a great insight into your mind as well. Like Elon and Lex are there trying to get you know. Say you're a hostage. Pretend like draw a dick on the board. Ha ha ha. Right. And you're you're getting it to spin up Python scripts about obscure physics problems that you find on Reddit. So that's well, that's great. That's a great I just, illustration. I, look, I just asked it a question that I was vaguely interested in. It did all the work. And I think I think this um like the natural language kind of interface and being connected to being able to, you know, understand images, also being able to work with equations and then and then implement them in in code to do calculations. You put all these little building blocks together whether it's got a soul or an essence or not, I don't really care. It's a, quite a useful tool. Well, Matt, the thing is, but is it funny? Can you make it like 50% more funny if you, I'm um, actually you could, yeah. you could just ask it to make a bad joke, but yeah, I, well, I had my own gripe, but I'm not going to feed it to people this week. I'm going to save it up because I, I don't want to overload them with, Gripes. You know, I'm pretty Zen guy. I don't need to talk about my gripe, but right. I do need to provide one piece of context for the interview, which is coming. So we've already recorded the interview through the magic of podcasting. And this conversation has some moments where there's 
kind of inside baseball from psychology and academia. And most of the time we do, you know, stop and try to explain like good science communicators, podcasters. But there, there was one thing where I don't think it's particularly well covered by myself when I introduce it. There was an event where a editor at Perspectives in Psychological Science, Klaus Fiedler, was basically forced to resign following a controversy surrounding a an anti-racist article published in the journal and his response to it. And I just wanted to explain what happens there because it comes up and we discuss it, but we kind of assume that people know, right? So the basic thing there was that there was an article submitted by a scholar, Roberts and colleagues, that took a kind of anti-racist, kindy-type position, right? D'Angelo saying, psychology has this problem and it needs to address it and look at the overrepresentation of Western subjects, but also white male academics and, and so on and so forth, right? And this was in 2020. Then Klaus Fiedler became the editor and he received a critical commentary on that article. And he sent it out for review and got positive feedback in the reviews. And so he was going to publish it. But he actually liked the reviews so much that he invited the reviewers who made their own critical commentary on the article to submit. So I think it ended up that there were going to be three critical commentaries appearing. And so he contacted the original author, Roberts, and um, asked him if he wanted to write a response, which he did. And then it goes through these various intricacies where basically the response that is written to the critical commentaries is going to be published. The editor sent it to at least some of the authors of the critical commentaries and they provided feedback on it. And he suggests the original author, Roberts, should remove a particular piece of criticism from it. And then the original author isn't happy. And in particular, one of the issues was Lee Jerusalem opened his critical commentary with a quote from some Shakespeare talking about being sold mules. Basically, I can't even remember the quote. I'm not a Shakespeare expert, but it, it's like selling somebody some a branded thing that turns out to be a dud. And he used an analogy from Shakespeare, which referenced mules. And then this was presented as he was introducing racist tropes by talking about mules whenever you have like an anti-racist issue and stuff. So, yeah. Uh, and the outcome is, regardless of what you think about the editorial choices there, and I think there are issues that can be raised about uh, the way that process was handled, but there was a internet outcry, and this led to a petition calling for his the editor's resignation for being racist, basically, uh, in his treatment of the original article and the commentaries. And then he does get summarily dismissed after a couple of days, and then there's a counter petition. I don't know if it comes before or after his dismissal, but but there was a social media outrage and he was removed. And then uh, I believe a bunch of other editors then left that journal in protest, and now maybe the journal doesn't have any editors. Or it's a, like So the whole situation was a bit of a shit show, but there was a divide 
were basically a lot of the people who were supporting the anti-racist article author Roberts uh, were from America. And a lot of the people who were more supportive of the editor and were saying, even if the editor is to be removed, you have to go through a process. You can't just respond to like a social media outrage. They were largely European academics, right? So there was this division. And then other people pointed out, well, a lot of the European academics responding are white, whereas the signatories for the American letter are, are more diverse. But part of this relates to demographic patriots and stuff. So that's the, the controversy, right? So this comes up and we discuss it a little bit. I think Daniel and Smirti, at least Daniel, was involved with the letter saying that we should engage in due process for the editor before we make any decisions. So yes, I just wanted to provide that context. Okay. <laughs> yeah. well, that's, that's, that's exactly the kind of kerfuffle I do not want to even think about a little bit. But there's the background, everyone. There is a breakdown of it on Lee Jersom's blog. Lee Jersom has a particular perspective on this issue, but he did produce a timeline of events, which is useful. So we'll link it in the show. Oh, and uh, one, one thing to say, I don't think I mentioned this in the episode, but I discussed this issue in classes in Japan where we were looking at controversies of modern psychology and with a bunch of Japanese students. They had various opinions on the whole issue, but their main complaint was that Western academics should stop using random Shakespeare quotes or, or like <laughs> classical literature because that's more confusing. <laughs> than, yeah. than the, so their thing was that's the ethnocentrism that goes undiscussed where yeah. everybody is trying to interpret Shakespeare quotes, but they just said this happens all the time and <laughs> nobody seems to consider uh, non-native speakers and their lack of familiarity with some of those literature. So there nice. you go. Nice. There you go. That's the voices voices we should be listening to, Chris. Good. <laughs> yeah. So, we're, well, and, and so begins our interview. A very smart people, advocates for open science and methodological reform, the true heterodox thinkers in academia. Um, so, so let's go talk to Daniel and Smriti. Let's do it. We have with us um, okay. today two other podcasts, psychologists of sorts. Maybe you want to clarify your specific relationship to psychology. But we have Daniel Lackins and Smriti Mehta. Smriti is from University of California, Berkeley, where you are a postdoctoral researcher. Is That's that right. correct? Yep. That's yep. all right. Yes, the, the CV is accurate online. And Daniel is an associate professor at the Eindhoven University of Technology, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> there we go. Good. First time, no problem, man. <laughs> all, all correct. Um, and they also host a podcast that both Matt and I are fond of. Matt, would you like to provide the details, contribute to the introduction? <laughs> I'd love to make a contribution, Chris. Uh, it's called uh, Nullius in Verba. And it's a podcast about science. That's what it says, what it is, what it could be. And all of the episode names are in Latin also, which makes it probably the geekiest podcast <laughs> I've, I've ever come across. Is, is that a fair summary, guys? Well, somebody recently said fake Latin names. And I was like, I don't know how that works. Because if you translate it into Latin, isn't that real Latin? But uh, yeah, it's a bit pretentious, but that's an accurate summary. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. 
we mainly like to talk about old stuff. So yeah. we thought uh, we were inspired in the beginning by yeah very old papers. I think sometimes there's a bit more new things in there, but that's where the old theme comes from, from, from everything, basically. So. Nice. Yeah, and I would also note that I came across, I think, Daniel originally from a MOOC that he had online about improving mm -hmm. your statistical inference. Maybe many people, or I might be in a bubble, but I think many people are familiar with that. But it, it, in both of your cases, were, how do you describe your, like, your academic interest now? Are you both social psychologists? Are you meta-scientists? Or, or how do you self-identify academically? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think for me, I think one of the nice things is that um, it can change over time what you do. It's one of the fun things of being an academic. So I definitely started out as a real social psychology. I had, you know, multiple people in the lab interacting with each other, studying things about movement synchrony and feeling of a social unit and really social stuff and slowly drifted more into cognitive psychology and then Basically, since maybe a bit more than a decade, I've been thinking mainly about how we do science, which is still social psychology, actually. Um, but now I'm thinking about how scientists who work together generate hopefully reliable knowledge and especially the social nature of this part. So, yeah, where I am now, I'm not completely sure, to be honest. But luckily, I'm in a department that's very broad with a lot of interdisciplinarity there. So I don't need to uh, categorize myself anymore. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure actually where I would place myself. So I just, I mean, I just finished my PhD. That's in social psychology. I'm not sure if I consider myself a social psychologist, um, mainly because I don't think they want me. But apart from that, I mean, my work is related to sort of education. So I'm now a postdoc in the Department of Education, but doing a few other things related to sort of science and science education and open science. And um, I'm really into sort of psychometrics and measurement. So kind of all over the place. Um, but I, I guess I just like hanging out with nerds is, is how I would describe <laughs> myself. Yeah. yeah. Ma, Ma, I just realized from that, I don't know what you are technically. Like I know <laughs> you introduced the podcast saying you're <laughs> a psychologist, but like are you, you're also Moonlight as a statistician, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you get to my age, you can yourself a lot of things because you've done a, done a few different things so yeah i don't know what i'd identify as either i, I i'd sympathize daniel in particular because uh you yeah, have just drifted from so many things like it started off in like psychophysiology and computational statistics doing things with time frequency transforms and that kind of stuff and then robotics and artificial intelligence and then oh god i'm not gonna i'm not gonna list all the weird <laughs> shit i've done but um but yeah, I like psychometrics and stats too. And actually, I know we've got some topics mapped out, but what we should do is just um, just forget all that. Just talk about latent trait modeling and <laughs> rash analysis for the rest uh, of yes. the <laughs> No. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, Matt, Matt uh, if you want to talk rash modeling, then I think uh, Chris, Chris and I should just go and have a beer and leave you. And <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, I, I also appreciate that on the podcast, I'm identified as an anthropologist and I like the cognitive part being added to that because nobody's really quite clear what a cognitive anthropologist is. So, but, but technically I teach in a social psychology department as a social psychologist. And I was recently reminded when I was arguing with someone online 
they they pointed out that my profile mentioned social psychologist and mm. i was like oh does it i put that on there so <laughs> yeah I, I have to be careful because yeah. they were trying to pin the replication crisis on yeah. Um, but, <laughs> no, that's my fault. That's really my fault. I mean, that's I, I did that. Sorry, sorry. By the way, my, my apologies. Well, it's all right. You're making up for it. And on that topic, so I know it's a big topic, and I know that you both have a lot of time discussing it in in various ways, including on the podcast. But for those in our audience who maybe aren't so familiar with psychology or the ins and outs of the replication crisis do you think either of you would be willing to provide a, like a kind of potted history of what it is and where we currently are in sure yeah in that history yeah no so basically it starts in 1830 when charles, <laughs> charles Babbage says that science is on the decline and everything is a mess and uh, no i mean which is true so throughout um, scientific history people have been complaining about this stuff that we are not doing the best possible job and i personally always think it would also be kind of peculiar if exactly at this moment we have figured out how to do science in the best possible way ever so this is it this is the peak of how to organize knowledge generation in human society so clearly we are not there yet but every generation i think identifies some of its own big problems and and we identify the, the replication problem that we produce scientific knowledge where you know a certain chunk of it is definitely reliable. I mean, people always focus on the other part that a lot of it is not reliable, which is also true, but a certain chunk is reliable. Another chunk is not reliable. But I think the difficulty is identifying which is which, especially given the way that we communicate science and we publish a lot of only significant results. So everything seems to work, but not everything actually works. So some of these things are reliable effects and some not, but they look the same in the scientific literature. And any novice entering the field will be like, okay, what am I supposed to do? Trust that everything replicates? That was sort of our default position, I think, when we got into science and we were doing our PhDs. And now it has changed to a default position where like, um, maybe not everything or maybe even, yeah, depends a bit on how skeptical you are, right, Shmiti? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that the surprise handover. Chris does that to me too. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I'm mm-hmm. curious, like, so you and Daniel, I think there's a very good part about your approach to things is to emphasize that people have been talking about the problems that are mm-hmm. now in the discourse for over 100 years from mm-hmm. like the, the foundations of science and complaining that people are mm-hmm. doing, right? Mm-hmm. So I I appreciate that like long point. And Matt and I often make the same point with conspiracy theorists. People talk about the new wave of them that emerge. But anytime you look at the history, they're, they're all running around talking about the Jews and various other conspiracies. But the particular like contemporary period, perhaps something that is a little bit different is the emergence of the open science movement and or methodological reform in in general so how would you characterize that whole sphere of effort the the kind of response to surprising low level of replication yeah the replication crisis in psychology really starts around i mean interestingly around when when i sort of 
was in college and graduating like 2011 is when a few things happened in psychology, right? We had papers that were probably well, a paper by Daryl Bem that was about the precognition and everybody's like, oh, they're, they're using the methods we've been using for a long time. And suddenly it's like, oh, but then we can't believe these results, right? Something we must be doing something wrong if they're doing what exactly we do. But but they're coming up with these results that are obviously not true. And then a few other papers were published, the false positive psychology that showed that the way things had been happening, um, at least recently, I'm not sure, Daniel, what do you think when things started? Because I don't think psychology was always this way. It was definitely an issue, I think, with social psychology, where at mm -hmm. some point, sort of like flashy results, like flashy, mm -hmm. non-intuitive results um, yeah. became popular. Like it was about doing sexy studies that showed things that, oh, like you thought this, but actually mm -hmm. it's that. And so yeah. I think that became popular at some point. I'm not sure, Daniel, well, you think that happened, but I think that led to a lot of people running studies that, you know, cute, sexy, whatever you want to call them, experiments um, that led to, yeah, uh, at some point people realizing, oh, most of the stuff we're doing is just not replicable. It's not reliable. And I think, yeah, since then, trust has just fallen in like now. Now it's gone the other way where people think that everything is just not true. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Mm -hmm. Like we just can't trust anything. It's all just a house of cards. And um, yeah, it's kind of it's it's very depressing, especially as somebody mm -hmm. somebody that's trying to be like, do I want to join this discipline or not? You know, do I want to be a card carrying social psychologist? It's like, but what does that even mean to be a good yeah. social psychologist? Right. I'm, I'm not I don't I honestly don't know. So it's a yeah. yeah. But in some ways, what I like about the last decade as well is the more positive side. So the developments mm. that have happened in response to this. And uh, I think there is something to be proud of. So I think in 2011, 12, you'd really be a little bit embarrassed to be um, maybe a social psychologist or a psychologist in general. But after these years, I think now we've really reached a point where we're sort of pushing the boundaries of what reliable science could look like by, you know, reshaping certain publication practices. Um, psychologists have come up with this registered report publication format where, you know, the methods and the procedures are basically presented to peer reviewers before the data has been collected. So this pre prevents all sorts of biases that were present before and that led to these replication problems. And you see that this publication format of registered reports, which increases the reliability, I would say quite a bit, is spreading to other disciplines. So now from being sort of, you know, the, yeah, the, the field you would be slightly embarrassed uh, to be part of, we're, we're moving to promoting all sorts of better practices. I think in terms of statistics, we see a lot of improvements as well. Nothing novel. I mean, often we're just incorporating practices from 50 years ago, uh, but nevertheless, we have started to incorporate these things and there are many other fields that don't. So they are also looking at what we're doing and copying some of this. So yeah, this open science movement in that sense is actually a little bit of a positive thing. And and psychologists have really pushed this quite hard, I would say. Because we I started might... it, yeah. <laughs> you like, we have to clean up the mess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but at least we, cl we cl cleaned up the mess, you know. It's not like uh, well, the current generation who's just pushing it forward to the next one in terms of climate uh, crisis or something, you know. We're, we're cleaning up our mess, I feel, because I really caused some of these problems. I mean, very early on, right? <laughs> I mean, my first paper is definitely an example of the bad stuff, but I also feel like I cleaned up uh, quite a lot of the mess. 
But do you think, sorry, I, I don't want to be like, can I ask questions <laughs> too? Like, is that fine? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but don't you think that, I mean, I do feel like it has sort of moved people away. Like, of course, you shouldn't be trying to run after sort of flashy studies. But I also think it has sort of sterilized the field in a way in that a lot of people are only running like MTurk studies. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. They're not going out into the real world or talking to people or maybe trying to play it safe just so yeah, stuff can yeah. be replicated. Right. So you can push it in a direction where people are less willing to go after real world phenomena or stuff that's sort of, yeah, you know, more like trickier to study, but is also very important just because you're trying to like do everything right. And there's stuff that's just hard to pre-register. Right. And yeah. so if you're worried about all that, I think, do you think it sort of moves people away from? Yeah. Yeah. But I think this risks. is a- yeah. yeah, this is exactly why it's nice to have this historical perspective, because you can come in now and you can say like, okay, open science and, and reform, they're pushing these things too hard and there are negative consequences of doing this thing. But you have to realize that 15 years ago, we started to do these things to solve other problems, right? And now we're going back and forth and it's like a pendulum swinging back and forth. There's always something that needs to be fixed. Uh, there's always a new problem that will emerge. And maybe, yeah, the next generation will uh, have to address some of these issues. That doesn't mean that the past thing, we could skip it. So I think that's an interesting thing of having a historical perspective and looking at things like open science and reform. It's just such a complex, continuously changing problem. You fix one thing, another. It's sort of like whack-a-mole. Like you keep whacking away these problems, but there are new ones popping up all the time. And that will keep happening for another century or something. You know, that's really the time window we're looking at to make things better, I think. Yeah, I, I've noticed, like, just from my involvement in the field, it there is a, a, something of a sea change in things like, I know pre-registrations are not adhered to perfectly or even <laughs> accurately at all in some <laughs> cases, but the pre-registrations even being a concept that people considered is a significant development. And mm. the fact that now my assumption is that I will have access to the data, which yeah. was something I really didn't ever consider when I was like starting out on my yeah, yeah. graduate studies. So, um, and, and this difference is super interesting because when we, we have this paper on the open peer reviewer initiative somewhere 2014, uh, just to give an indication of how things change. So in 2014, a bunch of people said, look, we think data should be open. Even during the peer review process, I should be able to be look at your data if if necessary. I mean, you know, I'm not sharing it with anybody else, but it mm. should be part of the peer review process. So we wrote this paper saying, look, we will only review papers where authors share the data or explain why they can't. Because sometimes you can't, right? Sensitive, way, way too sensitive, you can't. So just put in a sentence like we can't share it. And when that came out, people were really almost outraged about how were we, you know, so stuck up that we were going to say, no, 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 we'll only review papers with open data. Like, where did we get this from? This is not the way we work. You're not supposed to pick papers based on this criteria. You should just do what everybody else does, review papers, go along with the system. And now the system has changed. And now I think if you ask a young generation, like, does it make sense that you have data during peer review? They're like, yeah, that kind of makes sense to me. Sure, why not? So this change in like a decade, it's difficult for people to imagine. And I'm sure that there's going to be some issues with sharing data now during the peer review process. I don't know. There will be like somebody steals an idea or somebody, I don't know, there's a data leak that we don't want. Some other bad stuff happens, but nevertheless, you know, uh, the change is really sizable and 
Yeah, it's interesting to see that development in science because I think most people who listen think science is a very static thing. Like scientists do science and it doesn't matter if you're Newton or you do it today. But of course, if we're in the system, we see continuous improvement and change in, in how we work. I mean, I will say a historical perspective is important here, too, because it wouldn't have been possible to share data and materials as easily as we can now, like 20 years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. so it's important mm -hmm. to remember that. Yeah. 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 I mean, now you can be like, oh, yeah, share data code. Right. Like it's that wasn't possible. Right. Mm -hmm. I have a quick question, which is that like. <sighs> So I've experienced this. I've lived through it <laughs> as well, you know. And, I, and I've, I've been both a, a perpetrator and uh, and uh, mm -hmm. I think later on a bit of a fixer of this kind of thing. And um, at least in my personal experience, I, I lay a lot of the blame on uh, researcher degrees of freedom and perhaps mm -hmm. a lack of awareness among researchers about the way in which exercising those degrees of freedom can lead to false positives. And th that's where I was guilty in sort of being a stats guy and doing what was asked of me, which is just try looking at it again and you know, mm -hmm. do it, you know, use your imagination yeah. and, and uh -huh. you know, you want to be a solutions oriented collaborator, et cetera. Um, so, <laughs> and, and that's, that's obviously bad. So like there's so many things that contribute to false positives and the publishing of things that aren't true, but w would you put the bulk of the blame on, on that, that, that sort of, I guess, almost ignorant application of researcher degrees of freedom or other, other things that are more important? Well, that's definitely a problem. And how you say, like, it's so obviously wrong. I think that is the issue. Like, in hindsight, it's so easy to say that something was a silly idea. But really, and this is why I think psychologists have such a good role to play in the improvement of science, because we know about social norms and how if you're in a certain system, some things you don't think about. They're not salient or visible at all. But when you step outside of the system or somebody just pops this bubble and says, come on. Look at what you're doing. This was crazy. All of a sudden, you're like, damn it, it was crazy. Like, why didn't I think about this at all, you know? I mean, and I find it interesting. I mean, I was in Japan once, and uh, uh, we were wandering around the public space, and, and the person I was walking with left his bag somewhere on a chair, and we walked through a cafe. And I'm just like, your laptop is in the chair. Like, you should, you know, you should, aren't you? I was worried for this person that their laptop would be stolen. And he just replied like, People don't steal here. And I'm like, how is that possible? You live in a culture where things are so different. Like you would take stealing for granted in my country, you know? I mean, not that it happens all the time. It's definitely not that bad. We're very well off and everything. But nevertheless, if you leave it out, somebody would steal something, you know? So there are just differences that can happen. And sometimes they become very salient. So I think uh, that's basically it. And it also means what are you educating yourself about? There were just things we thought, no, I don't need to learn so much about it. It's fine as we do it. It turns out it's not fine as we do it. We had to study this way more than we had been studying this. And that I think happens when you get criticized. So this criticism we got as a field really pushed us to study this, at least in my experience. It's really how it worked. The criticism really forced me to think, okay, this is not okay. What am I doing wrong? and really study what, what happened. So, so that part about it is, I think, very interesting. And yeah, then these flexible analysis, I think, is one, one big player. Not the only one, actually, but I think big one. Yeah, and I guess I would place, well, I mean, I'm not sure blame is the right word, but I think <laughs> what causes it, I think, is one step sort of behind the degrees of using the degrees of freedom is this like very human 
like the, the sort of the king of all biases, just like confirmation bias, right? I think you go into any research program thinking you, right, you're trying to prove a hypothesis instead of trying to actually test it. And I think that's where we fail as like teachers of people who are teaching the scientific process, right? The idea is you should always be trying to disconfirm your hypothesis. And I don't think that is ever made very explicit in the in when we're teaching science, right? That you shouldn't like, of course, we think that, oh, this is the case, but your goal should be to try to disprove your own theory, right? I mean, yeah. I love that quote by Richard Feynman. You are the, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself or you are the easiest person to fool. And I mean, in psychology, it's very blatant, but you see it even in other places like chemistry and physics. We read some paper by a long time ago where you had, you know, in chemistry, they had like, there was some study where they had to like look at a paper and a filter through their hand. And it's like, you're more likely to believe that something is there when you expect to see it there, right? So you're like, every, all scientists are susceptible to this bias. I think it's a lot worse. And I think it comes from just not approaching the process with the sense of like, we should be trying to disprove what we're doing than yeah. not. So that's yeah. why you're always trying to find ways of like confirming your hypothesis rather than disconfirming it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I've found is, is that is, it's quite dangerous to, to set out with this idea that you you have a hypothesis and if if you if you if it doesn't turn out to be supported then you've failed in some way yeah and mm -hmm. uh, you were and, wrong uh, yeah yeah you were wrong you failed and uh, students often talk about it to me in that in that framing and and I've realized in my own work I can often think about it if with a little bit of effort you can actually think about it as being kind of neutral about what the outcomes mm -hmm. are like well i'm just picking a random study but recently we've been looking at the the effect of uh, gambling problems on on health utility quality of life that kind of thing and if the if the result is there is no relationship that's mm -hmm. pretty pretty wild right that's interesting mm -hmm. too and and you know you've eliminated one You've simplified the world a little bit, and now you yeah. can look at yeah, one possibility. So, yeah, maybe that could be part of it too. Just it's almost, yeah, adopting a slightly different frame of mind where you aren't actually motivated to do that. And obviously, journals not being motivated to just pull up, publish stuff that is counterintuitive, sexy uh, results. Right. Yeah. But it's also interesting to think a little bit beyond these kind of solutions, right? Because this is still within the system that we have in psychology currently, which is where single people do their own research, they collect their own data, they analyze their own data, which is just the way that we work. But maybe it would make a lot more sense if we just had some people who say, look, this is my theory. I'll clearly outline what I would consider support and when I would consider it not supported. Now, other people should be go, go and test this idea. Mm. And and then you separate this bias where you want something to be true. You have to be very clear about it. And people never do this, also not in discussions, right? Everybody is, you know, presenting their own data in any argument that you see. Nobody is saying, look, this is my hypothesis. You go and find some data for this and prove me right or wrong. I mean, mm. would be helpful. But and and that's what I think I like about having this longer term perspective. If you think like what could science be like in fifty years or a hundred years, it might turn more into something like this because it just ends up working better than the system we have right now. And it does happen, right? In physics, for example, right? There are theoretical physicists and experimental physicists. If we could separate those two, it's, yeah, a good way that's forward. Yeah. I think, Daniel, you on one of your courses emphasized the importance of when commenting about things to tie it to the data 
that you have, right? So rather than saying the theory was validated or whatever, saying in this data, we find this mm -hmm. relationship which accords. And I, I find that a very neat thing for increasing detachment to whether things are proven or, or mm -hmm. supported or, or like less supported. But I have found that that is, I find it, to be honest, relatively easy because I'm not strongly attached to any mm -hmm. particular theories, including mm -hmm. ones I've worked on for quite a long time. But I have found with older, more senior academics that that is not the attitude. And that it's very much taken that if the, the data shows a negative or, or just a null relationship, that this is very bad news right and we have to think of a positive spin in order mm -hmm. to warrant publishing it and mm -hmm. yeah it that that experience has reminded me that in some respects it feels that like the four of us here or online you can get into a bubble of sort mm -hmm. where you think open science practices or methodological reform is just generally accepted but it's not necessarily the case that those values are uh mm -hmm paid more than lip service, I would mm -hmm. say. But that issue about like attachment to theories, I don't know who, where it's from. Maybe you know the origin, but I heard somebody refer to theories being like toothbrushes that mm -hmm. everybody <laughs> wants to use their own one and not touch someone else's. And I, I don't know if there's a particularly good way to avoid attachment to your personal theory and research area when the disciplines currently reward you for becoming known as the person, right? The Nobel prizes yeah. are awarded to individuals as well. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. do you think there's any solutions there beyond complete reform of the no, public? Chris, Chris they already gave it to us. They already gave us the solution. <laughs> we need to have theoretical psychologists and empirical psychologists. <laughs> and the theoretical ones could be as attached as they want to be to their theories and the empirical once we just smacking them all down like whack them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think definitely that is a big thing to do. Now, I mean, there are some other things we could consider, and all of these are getting less popular than um, than having just a distinction like this. So, one thing is you could select certain scientists. I think that we select people into science who like this kind of thing. Too often we have scientists who have this commitment, like I want to make my theory sort of last forever. And then when I die, my theory will live on. You know, these kind of feelings are part of what some scientists are motivated for. And, and we could select people not to have these kind of things during a job interview. Now, this is not popular at all. You know, I don't think we'll ever do something like this. But of course, not everybody has this. You can look around and we all know some people who are very strong in this kind of feeling or motivation and some people who are not. So that's one thing. But the other, maybe maybe a bit better, is just having much more collaboration between these different parties. So there, there's, for example, a very nice uh, book um, by Mitrov on the Apollo space missions. And he interviews all the scientists who are involved, and they all have to work together. So that's good. But they also say how some of these scientists are just extremely attached to their theories. Like they will try to squeeze the last remaining drop of possible evidence out for their theory out of whatever data they're collecting. And they're saying, yeah, it's super annoying, but kind of also good to have some of those people in science. And I think, yeah, here also you would have to think what would the alternative look like if we were all being replaced by uh, 
feelingless robots. Like who would fight for their theory, right? Which theories get a real shot? None. We would just give up very easily. So, I mean, this is such an interesting dilemma. Uh, on the one hand, you don't want these biases. They have negative effects. On the other hand, we are people. We need to be motivated for something. And science is a tough job. Why am I sticking in science for for 10 years unless I feel like I might be able to do something? So it doesn't always have to, you know, find its way into trying to support your own theory. But these feelings are part of also what makes people a good scientist, I think. I mean, and I might not have it for theories. I might have it for other things, like the way we would do, we would do science. And I can get really worked up about this and get into arguments with other people about it. Yeah, so these affective processes are what motivates us. It lines up with a topic that has been on, on my mind, and I know also the uh, British journalist Helen Lewis was thinking about writing a book about geniuses, Right. Mm. And when we mentioned Feynman and there was the recent movie about Oppenheimer, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you definitely have these figures that loom large in science, like Einstein and, and Newton and so on, who are these towering intellects who make some great breakthrough. But when people delve into their life story, it often turns out that there's more complexity there. There's a lot of other people involved and mm -hmm. it, there's often insanity that, that sometimes comes <laughs> later, uh, you know, Nobel Prize disease and related to the kind of people that we look at, mm. there's, there's a divide definitely between the kind of online secular gurus that we look like at because in many cases, they dream of that. They want to be the Einstein Galileo figure mm. and they feel that the institution has kind of not given them their due credit. But on the other hand, I think there is a case to be made that there really are people who produce Nobel Prize-worthy work who subsequently go on to be charismatic gurus for homeopathy or whatever the case might be. So based on what you're saying, Daniel, I'm thinking, you know, in a, a kind of evolutionary framework that we need some proportion mm -hmm. of charismatic genius assholes <laughs> who <laughs> make contributions mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. we we have to be skeptical that just because you do that it doesn't mean that everything that you've done is good and that you are you know like a virtuous person that people should seek to emulate yeah that just <laughs> I've, i'm it's more of a comment than a question yeah no, exactly. And I think the challenge is, I mean, some things you can't get rid of unless you replace people by robots. So some things are always going to be there. And I think the challenge also, what I think philosophers of science would say in the last decades is create a system which has enough diversity so that you can accommodate people with those kind of personalities or kind of feelings, but that it doesn't push things out of balance in our search for reliable truth, basically, right? So that's the challenge, that you have a couple of those voices and they play their role, but you also counter this with something on the other side that, yeah, balances it out a bit and doesn't, you know, you don't give those people all the money, for example, or, or maybe none at all or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we move off the sociology of science, I got a question. Recently, I've begun to get a little bit disenchanted myself with the, the whole publication process in particular. Um, mm. publication reviews and this endless cycle of and it seems to me that 
you know, we've come this along. This coincides with Matt facing a couple of desk rejections. I had three desk rejections for a paper. For a pro- Thanks, It cost yeah. about 300000 yeah, and this is not a minor piece of research. It cost two hundred thousand dollars to do it. Um, wow. it oh wow! It's, it's good, but anyway, let's put that aside. It's fine. Um, but <laughs> that's not. That's not Basically, science, science and nature didn't want to publish your study. Yeah, go no. on. Yeah, go <laughs> on. These are very mediocre journals. I never bother with the good journals. They're too much trouble. But when you get rejected by the mediocre journals, it stings. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. then it stings. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, so my own feelings aside, like. In the olden days, it was basically a means of communication. Yeah, basically a group mm. email or a, 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 yeah. a letter to multiple people, mm. and it's so much more than that these days. Fortunately, I don't have to go for any more promotion or hiring committees. I'm going to die in my job, hopefully. But but for most academics, these are this. This is not just communicating to other academics. These are brownie points. The the papers themselves, according to the the, the quality of the journal, the number of times they're cited. And it's absolutely crucial because it's such a competitive professional environment that mm. you have to be, you have to have this focus on on these metrics. Obviously, at the same time, there's the commercial aspects of publishing, and universities themselves, at least in Australia, are totally ranked on these complicated metric counting systems of of all the researchers there. So there is this great big system of funding and of, of money and of careers and of jobs and promotions. And it, do you reckon that is pushing structurally the communication of scientists with each other in an unhealthy direction? Yeah, well, Who wants Schmitty to take that one? Already, yeah, Schmidt is already opting out of the whole publication system before yeah. she even started. So she <laughs> yeah, feels exactly the same. It's exactly a scam. The, same. the whole thing is a scam. It yeah. is. It is a yeah. scam. You're completely it is correct. A scam. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. they're like, "Oh, but you you need to publish. You need to play this game before you you can change it." I'm like, "But that, then you're part of the game, you know." Yeah, yeah. Then you're just yeah. playing it, but I, yeah, I, yeah. Go ahead, Daniel. Yeah. Well, we have a, a podcast episode that will come out on the peer review process, and I have to say, it was interesting to talk this through um, because you know it's true. You just take part in it, and I think uh, Schmidty is definitely more critical about about it. Maybe then I am even. But the recording made me think about this in the same way. I also thought like it's so so weird that we do this. And one thing that because we always dive back into history a little bit. And it surprised me how recent certain aspects of our publishing system are. Because you just enter it and you think this is how it was in 1800 something. But it's not at all like this. Indeed, in even 1930 or something, if you would submit something to a journal. Journals would be like, oh, lovely. We get something to publish. Oh, that's so nice. Thanks. And then really only after the Second World War, when there's a huge investment in science, we scale this whole publication process up. There's more money into science. There are more scientists. They publish more. We get more of these desk rejections because these journals can't keep publishing all this stuff. So this system where you are hurt because somebody didn't like your paper it is relatively recent given that science has been going on for hundreds of years, which also made me think, yeah, it can change. And and it might. It might. I mean, somebody like Smriti might just opt out of it. Who knows? And it is a bit more possible now. So there's, for example, one cool thing which develops in some fields is called peer community in. Because one thing that is kind of nice is have two or three people look at your paper and give some suggestions for improvement. 
that part of the process, I think, is not a bad idea, especially for people who don't have close collaborators or are just starting in a field and just need some feedback from a more experienced researcher in this field. Like, you missed this, you didn't think about this, and stuff like this. So this peer community in, which is a sort of publishing format where we just get together, the four of us could generate peer community in uh, guru science. And, and everybody who publishes on this topic, we will just organize the peer review process for them outside of any journal. We say, okay, here are the reviews. We can also read them. You can see what other peers thought of this paper. They chose to incorporate some of the feedback. It's done. You put it on a preprint server, which we have now. It's just a PDF. It gets a DOI. It's stored for a long time. We're done. Like you don't have to go through these kind of steps. So yeah, um, I think it takes some people who are brave enough to do this. And I, I was even after Smriti also yelled, "It's a scam! It's a scam!" I was <laughs> a bit, I was a bit inspired. I thought like, yeah, it is a bit of a scam. And and also I am like, you know, definitely in a position to do something about it. But I felt. Maybe I should do a little bit more about it. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, in a system it, that works well, it would work the way you were talking about the way it works back in the day, right? Where you have people who are doing their research and when they find something that's worth sharing with the world, then you would go and actually be like, oh, we found something and now we're going to go and actually this is something worth being out in the world so that it can move science forward. But that's not how it's done nowadays, right? Now it's like more about getting your publication so you can get your job and you can get your promotion, right? It has shifted from actually sharing truths to the world or to the scientific community to like things that you do to advance your own career. And that's what really, I think, bothers me. I mean, I'm more than willing to admit that maybe I'm just like not competent enough to, you know, to play well at this game. But at the same time, to me, it's like, well, if I found something that was worth sharing, I would be shouting from the rooftops, right? Yeah. Then it would make sense to go and be like, I've, you know, I'm going to add yeah. something instead of just throwing a pebble in a pile. Be like, no, this is something that's worth communicating to the broader community. And then it makes sense, right? And, and then in, in that system, even the metrics that we use would be useful, right? Because then if they actually reflected good quality work and work yeah. that's worth reading, right? Then those numbers, those impact factors and all those things, then they would be useful, right? But now there's just like, no, no signal in them, right? So they're they're not useful anymore. Yeah. So I want to attempt the devil's advocate for. We love that. Yeah. Bird. Yeah. Bird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I like. Uh, of course, I completely accept all the points about like the publication metrics and the horrors that can be going through peer review. And I've had various horrifying experiences with people with like kind of vested interest shooting down mm -hmm. papers and stuff. So I'm well aware of all that. And I, I like the sound of most of the experiments in peer review, open peer review, or mm -hmm. what you just talked about, Daniel. But with that said, all that long mm -hmm. preamble, mm -hmm. during COVID, yeah. the anti-vaccine community, and also I would say the <laughs> parapsychology community, though that's less of a concern, but the, the, there are a lot of kind of pseudoscience, conspiracy theorist type communities, some that are genuinely harmful, like anti-HIV um, mm -hmm. researchers. And peer review, it's not perfect. There, there are anti-vax papers that went through um, yeah. and, and there were preprints that went up. But by and large, 
a lot of those papers couldn't go through. Such that if you look at anti-vaccine mm. communities, they're always complaining that they're being mm. suppressed, right? And now you can either believe that they're being suppressed or the position I would take because they ha they are able to put their material up as preprints. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people through open peer review kind of processes highlight how extremely flawed the papers are and how why they should be rejected and not published. And yeah. I feel that often when psychologists and, and academics are talking about, you know, the need to reform, they're not so much focused on the possibility that those reforms can lend credibility to people who will promote really like harmful anti-vaccine misinformation or, or other uh, even worse things, race science stuff. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious about that argument that like getting over the low hurdle of, of peer review is actually a hurdle. Like uh, mm. a lot of the gurus we cover, they have very few papers because they can't really deal with getting critical feedback at all. Yeah. And and so if that's there, it kind of pr provides just a little hurdle. That would be my main pushback. Yeah. I mean, that is what it does. It's completely true. And there's value in this. And even preprint servers, there's a med archive. So uh, for medical research. And for us psychologists, we were just like, yeah, let's just create a preprint server, put stuff online. And we never have to think about the negative consequences or the negative impact of our work, because let's be honest, most of our work has little impact whatsoever. But in the medical community, this was a much bigger thing. So there they also set up a preprint server, but they have a much more elaborate screening process before it goes online. So in, in psychology, if I upload my preprint, it will be online. And there is a post moderation process. So it will be available immediately. And after a while, somebody takes a look like, is this, you know, isn't this crap or something? Isn't this weird? But in the medical field, they do it before exactly to mitigate these kind of hurts, right? So that makes sense. Now, overall, I mean, this is a very complex problem with multiple aspects. For scientists themselves, if we would never let other people read our papers, it would probably be fine not to have a peer review process because we are the peers anyway. We can read papers and understand them. And somebody writes this crappy paper, we understand it. The general public is reading along. And there are actors that want to co-opt our scientific process to give credibility to some claims that they, are, they want to make. And those are negative possible consequences that you need to prevent in some way. Now, the peer review process is doing this, but it also feels like it's such a, yeah, such a messy way to do this. Because exactly, like, I mean, you, you also can't say, okay, but if it was stopped at peer review, that is a good thing because Matt just showed us that his genius worthwhile papers are also stopped in this way. So it's a very noisy selection mechanism, right? Peer review. And I much more like this post-publication system, exactly mm. like Chris says, where afterwards, if the preprint is online, a dozen people point out flaws. Now, that also has negative things because I think some people are just willing to invest their entire life in producing bullshit. And then, you know, the investment to of 12 people to point out the mistakes in the work of one paper, basically this one paper is going to keep 12 honest scientists from making a useful contribution to society. So that's also not nice. So yeah, 
yeah, what to do? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, yeah, that, that's a fair point that it's a hurdle, but I would also say that we wouldn't see as much junk as we do if it was a decent hurdle. I mean, no, you read stuff that gets published in like PNAS and some other journals and it's like, like that stuff is just bad. And so what you're saying about like the, you know, the stuff that's really right, it's stuff like precognition that you're like, oh, obviously this is junk, right? Or like stuff where, you know, COVID like just awful, awful stuff, right? Like that's not making it through. Okay, but a lot of stuff is making through that's just absolute garbage, right? Yeah, and you yeah. know, you mentioned Daryl Bam, the yeah. paper, in case people aren't familiar, it's a, a paper feeling the future right. that, that claimed over nine experiments that mm -hmm. you could kind of apply the stimulus after the experiment and show that it, right. it produced an effect. So reversing <laughs> time yeah. causality, mm -hmm. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is quite the extreme claim. And that got, that got through yeah. in, in one of the top tier journals. So yeah. I'm, I'm definitely not saying it's a, it's a perfect yeah. system. I, I think just to follow on what you said, Daniel, and I, I think it accords with this point, is that you had an encounter recently with a guy, Alexandros Marinos, who mm. you may or may not know, but he gained an online profile from being a Brett Weinstein super fan. Mm -hmm. uh, he since branched out into other avenues, but that, that was primarily where he came from, promoting ivermectin studies. Um, mm -hmm. And he took an interest in the situation with the Dada Kalada mm. law. The fraud, and fraud case of, uh, or the alleged fraud case, just to prevent <laughs> also being sued. <laughs> yeah. The alleged fraud of Francesca Gino, Harvard professor, that yeah. Dada Kalada pointed out that there were problems in the, in the Yes, mm -hmm. and my, my hunch is that because myself and Stuart Ritchie and some other people that have been unpleasant about Eric Brett and Eric Weinstein's uh, conspiracy, mm -hmm promotion mm -hmm. were promoting that case that it might have prompted him to yeah adopt the more critical stance right because his position is somewhat skeptical that they've actually detailed mm -hmm. real problems and so on but i i mention him more as an illustration because there he produces he produced a thread on the the specific error or, or indicators of like fraudulent data that, mm -hmm. that have been detailed. And he did a kind of amateur analysis, right? Mm -hmm. But he his thread is always on Twitter or sometimes on Substack, but extremely long. Mm -hmm. And it, it, from the perspective of somebody who doesn't really know much statistics or know much about the processes involved, it looks very thorough. And that's mm -hmm. how his threads look about mm -hmm. ivermectin, so on uh, Robert mm. Malone's contribution to the mRNA vaccines, they're very detailed. And you guys yeah. did an episode on, on cargo cult science, right? Mm. And, and we've talked about this kind of thing online as being a kind of cargo cult presentation of scientific rigor. Mm. But mm -hmm. like you said, to address that, right, for someone mm. like you, it, the engagement would end up taking you weeks it would never end in the sense that there's never going to be a point where they admit that they've yeah. got something fundamentally wrong or changed their stance so yeah. in in that case like i'm wondering what you both think about the the kind of onus on scientists or science communicators to try and combat that because on yeah. the one hand 
I think it's important it's important that people are aware of it and kind of think about how to deal with it. But on the other hand, I completely understand real scientists being like, I don't have time. I've got my own work to do. I don't know how to deal with these people and kind of mm-hmm. you know just ignoring it or like blundering into you know not yeah. realizing who those people are. So I'm yeah, I you're given your recent encounters. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just curious any thoughts uh, yeah. about that. So I think it's interesting, but I don't think there is these people. So I think this is definitely a person who's in the extreme end on a continuum where they want to be critical about things that most other people agree. But I had similar encounters with just normal average scientists also taking a little bit of this critical stance, but it's exactly the same process. So relatively limited real engagement. And then I think in this case, this person actually had invested uh, some time in figuring out what the claims were based on. That makes it a bit more effortful to go in and figure out why they're wrong. That also makes it more... So I think the strategy is if you invest uh, more time into a topic than 90% of other people have done, you come across as really smart and almost mm-hmm. nobody is going to invest time to prove you wrong, even when you are actually wrong, right? So so it's an interesting thing to see. But there were other scientists doing more moderate versions of exactly the same thing. Like, oh, well, there's some good points being raised here against it being fraud. And you're like, no, those are not good points. You also don't mm-hmm. understand anything about this situation. So, so it's a continuous. Uh, so there's not these people, but there's this is just a tendency to criticize something based on a not complete understanding of something. So I think this happens all the time. I thought in this case, actually what I thought was fun, I mean, this was a, my summer wasn't the most fun. I was spending a lot of time in the hospital. My wife was really sick. So I really needed some distraction. And this guy was just one of the ways that I found some <laughs> distraction as I was sitting there. You know, you need to get worked up about something that distracts you. So... But what I found interesting was follow up, following up on this. So there's this initial threat, which sounds quite convincing. And in the back of people's minds, there's like, oh, but there was a thing here, right? There was a thing about this fraud case that wasn't so rigorous and solid and somebody was looking into it. And what I find fun to do is just two weeks later say, so where's the whole point? Like, where's the rest? You were making a starting point. Where's the rest? Yeah, no, no, I'm not not working on it yet, but I'll, I'll, I'll work something out. Okay. And then you get something that's worked out, which is pretty crappy. And you say, okay, so what about this and this and this? They're like, okay, okay, yeah, I'll look into it. And then two weeks later, you follow up again. You're like, so where is it? Where's this thing? And I think this is the problem we have. So people can float around hundreds of ideas. You know, most of them are crap. Some go viral and cause a little bit of doubt but nobody really follows up on stuff. So you should actually have some nice overview where you say, look, this is a claim you made. Mm. Here is why you were wrong about these things. And if you then have a track record of just being wrong a lot, and I look somebody up like this, but but this is again a thing that works just for gurus. It works just as well for scientists mm. because in science, we also don't have this. Anybody can come up with the newest crazy idea. And then if you would see, but you have a track record of just coming up with shit most of the time. Maybe we should use this a little bit as a Bayesian prior to say, okay, I'm not going to take it so seriously yet because you've been wrong so often in the past. I really need some other people to confirm what you're saying here. If that happens, fine. Now, we don't have this process, I think, because we didn't have these signals or these communication channels. 
So we don't have anything set up for these communication channels. We made the peer review process for the old-fashioned science communication thing, right? We had the printed media. We don't have something like this because, yeah, these communication channels are so new. Uh, so we just need to think of, okay, how does this work? You know, who who is checking this kind of stuff and how do we do it? Yeah, mm. and uh, I take the point about the like there being this tendency. Contrarianism sometimes can yeah. be correct. It's actually valuable. Like I, I find Lee Jusum extremely annoying, but I yeah. also think he, him, and people like him are valuable to having a, mm -hmm. uh, a discipline. So the and and I think there's good contrarianism and and bad contrarianism, right? The, the, and like yeah. you said, the yeah. track records can show you which which yeah. people lean towards. So I I would take that point. I think I'm a little bit more sensitive to the fact that there really are these like communities where mm -hmm. kind of anti-scientific principles are promoted and yeah. held up as yeah. as valuable. So but like, if people I do see that as a they yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah no i understand that that's also true so there are cer certain categories right and in the end maybe we need to draw some boundaries because, because like i've for a very long time stopped trying to convince everybody about things you know I, the probability that i'll convince 100 percent of people that i'm right about something uh, i've given up on this goal so there are people you will never convince and, and maybe it's fine. I mean, and then it becomes a very political game, right? What you want to do is limit the influence that some people have when you're really sure that they're doing something wrong. And that is, like you mentioned Lee Jassim, who's a contrarian voice in um, social psychology. But I don't think he's wrong very often. And um, yeah, so, so there's no reason to prevent somebody like this from having their influence. Then it's let, let many flowers bloom. We see what the end result is. And there, I think... Our field is actually even anti sort of it's overly conservative we want those contrarian voices we are very negative to some contrarian voices actually so we love to ridicule people if it's clear that they're over the edge but we don't deal very well with the contrarians just within the borders of what is very reasonable and, and we're extremely harsh sometimes about people uh, who who want to be contrarians in our field yeah, and Smriti, I had a question for you that, mm -hmm. that might relate to that point Daniel is bringing up. So I noticed on your Twitter profile that you have Heterodox Academy at, at Berkeley, right? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you don't remember. I don't know, I do remember. <laughs> and one of the things that I, I wanted to bring up with both of you, uh, mm -hmm. Leiterson being a good entryway yeah. to that, is mm -hmm. that there is open science advocates and the traditional somewhat hostile response to those efforts. But you also have divisions within those who recognize the need for methodological mm -hmm. reform, right? And, and one such division was highlighted whenever perspectives on psychological science mm -hmm. ended up forcing out Klaus Fiedler, the, mm -hmm. the yeah. editor. Mm -hmm. um, and there... There was Leitrism was involved because yeah. he, he was one of the invited commentaries on a mm -hmm. a paper that was arguing about. Uh, I'm not going to do a great job about it, but basically arguing psychology needed to adopt Kendi style anti racism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the, that whole issue, though, sh resulted in a a somewhat clear division, I would say, between European researchers and mm. American researchers where there were competing letters bouncing mm -hmm. around open letters and 
I wonder about your thoughts on the state of heterodoxy in kind of open science or, or academia in America, and then this potential divide between people in America and outside of America. I would just say from the perspective of me and Matt, for example, because neither of us is in America, mm-hmm. a lot of the culture war stuff often, like it's annoying, but it seems like a little bit distant, right? And because we're not surrounded by it. So I can sympathize with people facing those issues, but I also mm-hmm. feel like it, it, it sometimes is taken to encapsulate the whole world. And there I mean both like social justice concerns and the anti-social, not anti-social justice, but like thinking that the social justice stuff uh, is consuming too much attention. I realize that's like a ton of things to throw (laughs) out. You can pick anything that you like to comment on. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that case was just, I mean, it is sort of very interesting. And I I will say, I mean, I'm in the US, but I am also at Berkeley, which is probably sees like the worst of like this. We are like, it comes from here. I think I will say that like, we, it's our fault, like that all of the stuff is <laughs> happening. Like, I mean, no, which is true. I mean, a lot of the DEI statements and stuff like that. I mean, it is like the, yeah, we have given birth to all of that. So it's a, it's a very interesting place to be. Like, it's almost like people, there's a lot of people here that of course, like trust in science and care about science, but also have a lot of social justice concerns um, it's all coming, I think, comes from good intentions. But so I've had conversations with people here at Berkeley who are, of course, very open science, very into that stuff. But when I when you talk about Heterodox Academy, they will say things like, oh, but I thought when I think Heterodox Academy, I think people like Jordan Peterson and mm-hmm. the intellectual dark web. Like they associate like like it's essentially like when you talk to them, they're like, what it sounds like you're trying to do is create a safe space for racists. And of course, the meaning of what it means to be a racist is has now completely changed. It's like if you say things like we want everybody to be treated equally, that's racist. Or I just attended a seminar that was um, one of the authors of the paper who also Lee Jessam is on in, the, in defense of merit in science, right? You would think yeah. a very sensible thing, right? We, we should care about merit before we care about things like what your gender is or what the color of your skin is. But that's a controversial thing that some people think that that's now a racist thing, right? Or mm. that if you have things like standardized tests that lead to differences in outcomes, right? That that makes the test racist, right? Going back to sort of psychometrics. So it's, I think there's all this concept creep going on where people are trying to do the right thing, but it is becoming, yeah, like I think they're putting a lot of value on that stuff above and beyond like things like pursuing truth because even if if you think there's a problem and you want to solve it you first need to figure out what the truth is and I think yeah so that's getting lost and I I mean Danielle and I have this conversation too right sometimes it's like it feels like it's a really it's a lot worse here but I think it starts bleeding in like I I think the U.S. and also American academia has just outsized influence on the world right so I think Mm. it's something to be mindful of and that's one of the reasons I'm part of this is that we need to be having these conversations and think like, right, like if you have now people saying that, oh, math is white supremacist and rationality is white supremacist, like we can't function, you know, in science if we think like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it, it's yeah. a problem. And I think it's going to start bleeding into, yeah, everything we do. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's and it's terrible for science. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting because in our podcast, we've chosen to never talk about current. Yeah. <laughs> 
topics, right? So we would never <laughs> talk about really a topic like this. That's a really good uh, idea. Yeah. <laughs> There's some reasons for it. That doesn't mean that we, you know, uh, off the podcast, we don't talk and think about these issues. And I think this um, situation that emerged, so it really is the perfect, let's say, distinction between things that happen in the US and in the rest of the world. Uh, because the original paper that was published was about the representation of people with of certain racial minorities in science itself, and that there was a disparity. And you know, the paper basically said it would be good to do something about this. We need to go and you know make sure that there are more people of other groups in science. And um, the criticism on this, and I think this is important. So somebody like Klaus Fiedler, who's a German psychologist, I know him quite well, and. I think people in the US don't know him very well, but he's like in the most prestigious position in German academia you can be in as a psychologist, basically. If you tell me like, hey, look, uh, Daniel, you can walk in this room and have a coffee with Klaus Fiedler or Daniel Kahneman, I would be like, I can, I get to meet Klaus Fiedler. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Whereas most Americans would probably be like, yeah, you know, you'd pick the other person. But for us, this is already quite different. So I think that's out of the context that many Americans realize. Now, he is also the poster child of if people do one thing, I will argue against this as a matter of scientific principle. It doesn't matter what my opinion on something is. If I just see most people go in one direction, I'll go in the other direction and say that's the direction we need to go in because I think in science somebody needs to take this. So he is a contrarian out of a scientific principle. So he writes or he invites, I guess, or gets a paper as the editor. Well, this paper is not really good. It makes some weak arguments, which of course, yeah, uh, every paper can make some weak arguments. It's fine. There's definitely some points to criticize in the paper. If you read some of these comments, not everything that's written there is crazy. But just doing this, and I think he's aware to a certain extent that doing something like this will piss off people in the US. But I think he also thinks this is important. It's important to piss off the people in the US sometimes because exactly as Chris says, like, yeah, it feels that they have a little bit of an outsized influence on the rest of the world. I mean, they're not that many Americans. Um, <laughs> they are the minority and it's lovely that they have their own problems. It's exactly like you say, it feels a little bit like, yeah, you have your own problems there. It's not yeah. that we don't have any of those problems. But we have them in different ways, you know. It it plays out in other other ways. Um, so I think somebody like like Klaus Fiedler says, "Yeah, I am gonna piss off some people over there, but it's fine. That's what my role is. We should have a science where this happens every now and then, because if we don't do this, that is not good for science." And yeah, I think it's a nice illustration that in this case the response was so extreme that he basically had to quit his position as an editor. Um, not only that, but actually the whole, the, so this is a journal perspectives on psychological science. It led to such a problem that the field thought, the field, we mean the US people behind yeah. the publication, right? Mm -hmm. They felt like it's too difficult to have a journal like this at this moment. Nobody wanted to be the editor. So it has become so sensitive that for a moment now, we can't have a journal that publishes perspectives on psychological science because apparently it's too touchy a, a topic or something. Well, those things are really interesting and I don't really know why we don't talk about this so much um, because that is a very interesting development, I think. And definitely this difference in opinion between what the US, what people in the US think and what people in the rest of the world think, 
that is worthy of discussing a little bit more. Maybe not exactly like Klaus Fiedler tried to do it, by the way, you know, we can definitely have a different way of putting it on the agenda. But um, yeah, it's worth discussing totally. Yeah. yeah. And it's terrible because it ends up affecting like the scientific process, because I mean, I see it all the time where people are unwilling to criticize certain research because of the topic that's, you know, mm -hmm. maybe a little sensitive or controversial or the researchers are people of color or minorities. And it's like, well, that's not healthy. Right. That's mm -hmm. that's a really terrible thing, because that means that we're not doing what we should be doing, which is criticizing ideas or because now people are afraid that they're going to get called a racist like Klaus Fiedler again. You know, we it's uh, some things. Yeah, again, that he did. Maybe he should have done or gone about it different. Like we, like we could definitely acknowledge that. But to call him like a racist is just. But but now people are worried about that, and so you're yeah. we're we're sort of losing as a whole. Yeah. And and a situation I, like this doesn't make it easier for people to do it next time around. And yeah, um, uh, we were discussing hiring of academic staff a while ago, and um, mm -hmm. so in my university, we try to promote. Um, having more women as professors in the university. We are a technical university and just from the past, we didn't have equal numbers of men and women being professors. And it's still very slow, this process of uh, reaching a more equal number. So the university board had decided that there would be a new policy where they would first advertise certain jobs or maybe all jobs actually for a while, only to women. So the first six months, only women could apply. And if you couldn't find a suitable uh, candidate after six months, you could open it up to anyone. And the, the idea behind this is maybe worthwhile because we definitely want more role models for our female students. Like, hey, I can also become a professor. So I'm all on board with that. Um, somebody sued the university for this rule being um, discrimination. It went to court. And court said, this is indeed discrimination. So you can't do this. They have changed the rule a little bit. Now it is only certain departments for certain positions, like the math department, for example, is still entitled to open jobs for a limited amount of time only to women to promote more women applying to these jobs. But my department no longer can do this because we were already pretty, pretty fine. Now, Suing the university over something like this is something that you have to do, right? You have to do this if you want to have criticism of policies where you're like, maybe this is not in line with, uh, in this case, it went to the Universal Court of Human Rights. That's also, that's kind of nice that we have human rights like this and some objective people who think about this. You can disagree with it. That's fine. But okay, it's policy. And we were thinking, would this happen? in the US, right? If you have a policy like this, would anybody go out and sue the university for discrimination? I don't think so, but maybe they should, right? I mean, we need to be able to have a discussion, a critical discussion about topics like this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sort of happens here, but not as blatantly as you would only have, right? Here, it's like women and minorities are encouraged to apply, right? It's things like that where you get around, right? So you mm -hmm. can't get sued, right? But, but it is still done. And I mean, again, the DEI statements, right? I mean, that all started, I think, if I'm not wrong, like here in the UC system, probably at UC Berkeley, if I'm not mistaken, where they do use that as a first pass. So they will actually, the first thing they look at would be your DEI statements and just like, that's your first cut of like just removing 80% of the pool because their DEI statements are not up to the mark. So they do it in these oblique ways without actually openly saying 
that, yeah. you know, we only are limiting it to the people who we think are ideologically aligned with us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if um, GPT-4 is going to solve this issue. I mean, <laughs> it, it, isn't, it, isn't it pretty easy just to um, hit those... Um, oh right, oh, right. Those <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> and, and it is so unfair I mean since we're talking about sort of the global perspective it is so unfair to people who are international students who don't know all the ins and outs yeah. of what's happening in American academia right like you have to know what they're looking for to be able to give it to them in these statements because they're not looking for your opinions right they're looking to yeah. hear what they want to hear and so yeah. if you don't know what's going on right it is so un deeply unfair to you know my to minorities people do who don't have in fact i mean i've heard from people here that some of the when they actually score those di statements the people who end up doing really well sometimes are like white men yeah like mm, with yeah. you know who are who come from academic backgrounds it's like yeah because they know what to say to get in and right uh, I, I was saying exactly that actually to to a colleague yeah. uh, early, earlier today, which is that like those statements are not like I I I also think I'm one of those people that knows what to write in them, and um <laughs> and and they're very much not like oh you know I've supervised all of these students from yeah. diverse backgrounds um etc um work with these colleagues it's, um because that's like saying you've got some black friends right <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not racist yeah. so what is wanted right. of course is the correct language. Um, the, the correct kind of theoretical references and allusions. And it really, it, it, you know, it, it, it strikes me that th this is something that is going to be challenging for someone that isn't enculturated in a particular kind of upper middle class background. And, and if you're from a working class background or if you're a middle-aged Indian engineer, say, who's recently come to the United States, you are going to be very much disadvantaged compared to someone like mm -hmm. me. So, but I'm, I'm hopeful that GPT-4 will be able to be available uh -huh. to everyone and... <laughs> Well, this but is, then, yeah. This what's the point? Yeah. Mm, yeah, what's yeah. the point? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's what Joel Limbar kind of argued, right? But and, right. and then almost all of the beat, the beat around that did not focus on what his actual argument was, which was that right. they're not whatever you think about their merit. That like, there's no evidence that they deliver what they say mm -hmm. that the proponents say they can deliver. Yeah. I think I think he even just doubted whether they, you know, yeah. it was just a discussion of do they actually deliver? It wasn't the evidence I don't think is there even. So it is indeed not a good thing if raising the question, um, and I, I think you can raise questions in bad faith, but this is not a bad faith question, right? This is just like, are we helping the people we want to help? Um, you should have criticism in science. And I think it's an interesting distinction in how much different cultures allow different criticism. I mean, I often joke that because I'm from the Netherlands, we are so direct, like we will just criticize you for anything, you know? It, it is true to a certain extent. There are other cultures like this, but... Uh, That's why people um, think you're an asshole on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. That is, I mean, and I am sometimes. I am an asshole on Twitter because I also don't particularly care. But it's Dutch, I mean, it's Dutch, it's Dutch. Well, well you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't excuse me completely about it. Sometimes I'm just an asshole. I'm just annoyed by people and I just don't uh, control my uh, annoyance. But um, the point of being able to criticize things is something that some people hold as a really core value of academia. And I've talked to many people who feel that they lost interest in science because it has stopped being a place where you can voice these criticisms. Now, there are, again, very big differences between fields. I think everybody knows the um, stereotype about economics 
and economic seminars where if you give a presentation, you just need to make a title slide because people have criticized your idea for 30 minutes before you pass the title slide. Mm. Now, but I have the feeling that in our field, we're really moving away from being able to easily criticize all sorts of um, things you would reasonably be, be critical about, I think. I have to relate an experience that touches on all this, that um, Amy, Amy Cuddy, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the dog agrees. Or he loves Amy Cuddy, yeah. Yeah, yeah so like, conditioned, no, no, conditioned about his name. There's something's weird going yeah. on. Yeah. How often that's, do you mention this name around the dog? Whoever's dog that was, I'm not going to say anything. Post. That, yeah, uh, okay. yeah. Yeah, but the, so Amy Cuddy was the researcher associated with power posing um, who came on the fire during the replication crisis. Um, And I was commenting actually on, uh, she posted a thing about how how terrible the online psychology community was. And it was always kind of tearing down people, right? And at Mm -hmm. that time, Ico Freed had just been sued by Jerry Coyne. um, And... Uh, just successfully defended that that in itself is a whole other like terrible mm-hmm. event he should never have been sued to be clear from and mm-hmm. i'm glad that he was able to continue but in any case after seeing all the uh support that had came out for him an early career researcher against a well-established researcher that was suing mm-hmm. him i just find her characterization very incorrect and i made a comment mm-hmm. about it saying to something to that effect. And I, I think it was early in my Twitter career, so I quote tweeted without anticipating that she would <laughs> respond to that. Um, yeah. But respond she did. And then she <laughs> found a blog where I had just written a little thing, mainly uh, repeating Simone Vazier's um, point that like criticizing someone's research is not bullying. It's a separate thing. There mm, can be bullying, mm-hmm. but yeah. criticizing research has to be allowed. And she she kind of framed that as me being part of the the kind of mob attacking her. And sub, I went back and forth a little bit and then mm. subsequently got an email from her um, requesting to interview me for her book, Bullies, Bravehearts and Bystanders. And it was wow. quite clear. As that, a Braveheart? <laughs> you Braveheart? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I was going to be a Braveheart. And I just remember like, this was a number of years ago, but wow. like the the sign off on the email had her her university affiliation, but also how many millions her things mm-hmm. talks have been seen by or, or books published, and the the tone of the email was very kind of accusatory. And mm-hmm. I was thinking at that time that like she presented it as me, the power differential being me attacking a woman, right in science. But the the salient part differential for me was this extremely like credentialed researcher who could accuse me in a book of being yeah. like yeah. A, a sexist bully, and and so I declined the kind invitation to <laughs> contribute. Um, and and I will say I also got um, DMs from Simone and some other uh, people who had noticed that, and just to say we like messages of support, which was very mm-hmm. nice, and I appreciate it, but. But that case, if you take it purely on the kind of standard identity issues, mm-hmm. it, it could be very easily to slot in 
like male academic attacking a mm -hmm. female academic and dismissing her like rigor, right? But but that wasn't anything to do with it. Her gender was no concern of it. So I, I realize this is an indulgent example, but I I just mentioned it to say that like that mm -hmm. definitely applies. And I I'm pretty argumentative and stuff, so it didn't stop me from continuing on. But if mm. I wouldn't blame someone else, especially someone in America who might be going for positions or whatever, to basically be like, I'm not going to talk about any of that. I'm not. I'm just going to remove myself because that mm. could do very real damage to mm. you know career prospects or something like that. If you become lead juicing before you have tenor, tenor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's definitely an interesting uh, case because I think it is um, a good example of where we want to draw the line between criticizing research, like the way that we want to criticize research in academia. And um, so there's this book um, which I like, I think, by John Ronson. So you've been publicly shamed, mm. and uh, it really nicely illustrates how online things can really spiral out of control and you can become like, a, you know, everybody can fall over you for some reason. And it feels, if you are the person uh, experiencing this, it feels like uh, it's horrible. It's horrible. It will damage you for a very, very long time, even though everybody else has moved on after the one week that they were publicly shaming you. So in this case, this is actually what sort of happened. I think actually there, the people who used Amy Cuddy's power posing as an example of problematic research. I think it's very small. Actually, I think it is basically Andrew Gelman on his blog, who used to, for like mm. years, use this as the example of sort of shoddy, along with research on hurricanes, like the names of hurricanes. He had a couple of those examples. He just used them for years. I think it's actually mainly there that this has happened. If you look around, not a lot of other people have used this repeatedly. But regardless, at a certain moment, people have associations. And it sucks if you become the association people have with research that is probably not reliable, even though there's a ton of other people who've done this and a ton of other people who have been criticized. I think in our field, if you know uh, somebody like John Barge, I don't think this is a person who really came away easily from this whole replication crisis uh, and was also criticized a lot. The only difference is he didn't push back you know, just don't hear from some people, just much more quiet and uh, in this case. So, but where the line is supposed to be is an interesting one. And I think if you had perfect control over a system, you would say, people, let's move on from this one example. There are many other examples we could use. Can we just, you know, stop using power posing as the example here? But it doesn't happen. At a certain moment, you have to keep talking about it, which is why we are talking about it now. So it is just this reinforcing thing right? Mm -hmm. Again and again, you can never get rid of it, even though it's regrettable. But there is stuff to criticize in this work, of course. And in this case, I've been involved, for example, in the peer review process. And I think that people from all sides in this discussion haven't been perfectly objective in having a discussion about this topic. Um, so yeah, how, how we criticize people is just not such an easy thing to do well so that everybody is happy with how the criticism has happened, of course. And I, I would add, though, that Dana Carvey, the co-author on one of the original Power Posing papers who wrote a, a, on a blog, I think, a kind of mm -hmm. just a Word document talking about some of the researcher degrees of freedom and, and 
problematic research uh, things that they applied but she was very open about it and basically said she didn't have confidence on the effect but she wasn't condemned for that in any way she performed was completely celebrated as like an example of good mm -hmm. uh, like scientific virtue so it I don't think it is the case that people are always just looking for any excuse to to tear people down, like within the open science community. Though it's sometimes presented that way. <laughs> yeah, and Dana but, is Dana was actually the first author on a lot of that work. Dana Carney, who's also here at Berkeley, actually, um, and yeah, her response was a lot more right. Like, I don't trust that. I don't trust that research anymore, and much more balanced. But I will say here, I mean, there's two things to mention here, right? Like, the, the one is like. When you're in this, like, especially in the American academic system, everything is now about power differentials, right? And it doesn't matter if she's like a professor, you know, at XY, this big university versus, right, you're a white male, right? And she's a woman. And so there's there's a power differential, even though, right, that's one thing. And I do think there is a gender difference in ways people communicate, right? And I think that's mm. where the heterodox stuff comes in, but also the whole broken science, right? That schism comes because of the the differences, right? Because, and I am pretty argumentative too. Maybe that's why I, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm okay with these conversations because I will get into get, get into it with people and it's not, but I do think that women are sort of socialized to be a lot more, you know, agreeable and not. And I think, the, so I think, there's a lot of people that think that if you communicate criticism a certain way that it's bullying, right? That if you ask, I think Lee Jessam has also been accused on Twitter just for asking mm. somebody to mm. give evidence for what they're saying. And that's bullying just because, right, of the power differentials, quote unquote. Um, mm. And so I think Lee it's... Lee Jessam has asked me to give evidence. For <laughs> he does He does I, that I to everybody. Me. Like <laughs> he, go, he goes <laughs> after <laughs> everybody. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? And as he should, right? As is his right as a scholar and, and as it is your responsibility as a scholar. Like if some, if you're saying something, you should be able to back it up, right? Um, so I think that that creates the whole sort of broken science thing where if, you, if you're criticizing people and you're not careful, and again, nobody should be an asshole. I think we can all agree, right? Like you should not be an asshole to, to people. Like we should be nice about it. So, but of course, yeah, like the communication, but it does also go back to the thing we were talking about sort of... Um, people having their own theories and their own ideas and you do have to sell it. It's almost like your brand, right? And I think what we should be emphasizing more is that you should be able to separate yourself from your ideas, right? So people mm -hmm. like, right, Amy Cuddy, it's like you can say, you if, if that wasn't such a big part of who you are and it wasn't your brand, then you could think of it as, oh, this is an idea that I put out in the world and maybe it's not replicable and it isn't. And then you could say, right, like if you had more, more separation of it, from who you are, then you then you would not take it as a personal attack. And I think that's that should be the case for everybody, right? If if I put it forth a belief, I reserve the right to change my mind, which we should be doing as scientists anyway, right? All our beliefs are provisional. Like anything I say even on this part, and I will deny all of it, you know, in a in a week. <laughs> so you so, right, like you reserve the right to change your mind, and that's a good thing, right? So you should not be right. So if somebody criticizes what you're saying, I think people are so quick to take that as a personal attack instead of thinking of it as, oh, I'm separate from my ideas. And if somebody attacks my ideas, I should be able to evaluate those on the merit of the argument that's being made instead of thinking that I'm being attacked or bullied. And I think, yeah, that it's hard to do, right? We're human. I think that can be hard. And especially if the other person is being an asshole, it's so easy to be like, oh, well, that's the person just an asshole, right? Yeah. So I think it, it like it's a complicated, yeah, dynamic that I, yeah, I'm not sure how to yeah. deal with. And yeah. And what doesn't help is that sometimes people are just 
well, whether you want to call it a bully or an asshole, but people are just being an asshole. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that happens. And I think there's, of course, a correlation between people who are willing to voice their opinions about things, but also people who have an affective response that is stronger than their desire to be liked by fellow academics. I mean, that's basically what's driving some people, right? You're, you're, you want something, you're like, you don't want something to happen. You're upset about a topic. Let's say bad science. There have been people complaining about this for 20 years. They keep seeing it. They get so annoyed by this. They care more about this than being liked by other people. But those people can also be jerks. And I mean, I, I am one of these people <laughs> in a sense. Now, to be clear, like if I die, I hope that a lot of people are going to stand up and say, so Daniel was really kind to me during this period of my life or this, right? I really hope this is going to happen. I'm pretty sure that there's a very sizable group of people who will say this. But there are things that you see online in my behavior where I am just really annoyed and frustrated. I should close my browser window and not let my personal annoyance from the last decade carry into this one message that I'm sending somebody who's not thinking about all this stuff, but I do. That's not a good thing. If I was a perfect human being, I would cut my own distinction between what I want and what other people do. You know, I would be more objective about this, but I don't manage. I'm always impressed by people who seem to manage to do this very well. I can't. It's a personal flaw. Um, but yeah, you know, I hope to compensate it by doing some good stuff for people in other places. And sometimes I slip up. And, and if you call me out for it, I hopefully will also have the, uh, you know, I will also be good enough to say I crossed the line. I definitely feel often like, okay, this was too harsh. Sorry. And I will say it sometimes, you know. Um, but there is definitely a correlation there. I'm more likely to say something that is just a little bit more nasty or because I'm annoyed or frustrated. It is true. You should try demulate me, Daniel. I'm very, I stay very calm and, and non-aggressive online. Yeah. So that's, that's how to do it. And uh, Ma, I, I see you shaking there, wanting to throw your oar in. Uh, Mr. No, I'm fine. Brian? I'm fine. I'll move us all along away from these potentially dangerous third rail topics, race <laughs> and gender and sexuality and power dynamics. Um, so let's talk about a group that, everyone's prejudiced against, apart from the Dutch, Bayesians. Uh, what, <laughs> why do you hate them so much, Daniel? <laughs> so, so let me just say that some of the uh, most fun <laughs> feedback I get on my course that's online, so this, op this course, uh, open course on improving your statistical inferences, it has a lecture on Bayesian statistics. And sometimes people say, oh, I was really so interested in Bayesian statistics after doing this course. And people recently invited me to say, hey, we're teaching, we want to get some training in Bayesian statistics. Do you want to come over and give it? So I, I do think hopefully that in my teaching, at least, I'm objective enough about it. So, uh, well, um, Maybe it's a bit of a contrarian thing to want to just defend these poor little p-values against this, um, what I think is sort of pushed towards other ways of analyzing data. One reason that I think um, this is not a good idea is very principled. So if you are a subjective Bayesian, why I don't like subjective Bayesians is because it violates my philosophy of science. And I think it is very much part of wanting a science where your personal beliefs don't play a big role. So if you analyze claims, so of course we all have our beliefs and you can come up with any hypothesis you want. You can study anything you believe to be valuable. 
But when we're evaluating claims, I just don't like subjective beliefs to be part of this. And in that sense, I'm not saying anything that Karl Popper wouldn't say, although he's also not as popular anymore as he used to be. So I'm just exactly in line with this. Um, so that's one mm -hmm. component. And the other component is that for me, I think a lot of people are just mindlessly switching one uh, mode of statistics they don't understand very well to another mode of statistics that's arguably more difficult to do well uh, and that they understand even less. I, I wonder, and maybe you've seen this as well, that like Bayesian thinking is like a buzzword in a way and in heterodox spaces, not, I'm not talking specifically heterodox academy, I just mean mm -hmm. Heterodox spaces. I often see people reference. I'm I'm thinking Bayesian about this, and they'll they'll produce in, in the worst case they produced a Bayesian equation for the probability of lab leak, which had just like what you said <laughs> that they're all subjective value. Like let m equal uh, you know my assessment that it's likely, and yeah, and it, it oh struck me that that has allowed people to kind of formalize inserting just their their intuition as their a their priors some, yeah <laughs> yeah something that yeah. sounds statistically complex yeah. but uh yeah. yeah are you and i know that we're all we all have friends who are Bayesians here we we good Bayesian people we we appreciate I, I don't make friends with Bayesians no <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sorry that's and, yeah uh, that's how, do you, how do you feel uh, about them Oh, and the, the issue. <laughs> well, I, I, again, I don't hang out with Bayesians. No, thank you. But well, <laughs> but the thing is, I mean, it, it's I've always had the like in, intuitively. It I, I agree with sort of Daniel, where it's like there's something that just feels off about it, right? It's like this kind of thinking of like you're literally. I mean, in, in a technical side, there are people who make the argument that once your prior goes in, you're you're multiplying your prior, you know, with your with your data, which is like making up data, right? You're just making up like oh, I thought something, and then you're using it right so it's almost like faking data and a lot of the priors are so informative <laughs> like what's the point right um what is the point like like they're, they're totally an, an informative I, I just want to have this bayesianism it's just like faking data i just want to I mean, even on like a theoretical level you'll hear people for bayesianism making the argument oh but it's how babies think right that's how babies make sense of the world i'm like really that's how we want to do science it's like take cues from how babies make like come on it just does not it just does not make any sense like on any level and one of the best arguments i've heard against bayesian thinking sort of bayesian epistemology recently was a novel ravikant's podcast if you guys have heard of that novel um maybe i'll share the link and i won't be able to like recreate that argument really well but it's like in in bayesian thinking right like if you're collecting more like newton's theory kept on gaining more and more Right. Each time you're collecting a new 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 evidence for it, your prior should have get, kept kept on getting stronger and stronger yeah. until the very day that you it was disconfirmed, which meant that the day before it was disconfirmed, you had the mo you should have had the most reason to believe that it is true, which when you think about it does not. Right. That's not a good epistemology like right to have. Um and it yeah, it's always sort of intuitively just been such a weird thing. And but the one thing that really bothers me about Bayesians 
is they use the the term Bayesian when they're talking about the analyses as if it's like something amazing, right? I mean, in psychometrics and stuff, we use it, you know, sometimes to yeah, create like APSR distributions or like get some estimations, but they throw it around as if it's meant to be something very rigorous. And that's what bothers me. Yeah. yeah. God, they're, they're the worst. That's, yeah. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 they, when people take, Bayesianism, you know, like as you've highlighted on your work, Daniel, there, there's there's plenty of occasions when depends on the question you're asking, like what sure. is the appropriate method to apply. But I I have noticed that as we pay more attention to like the the secular guru space and the mm -hmm. uh, the appeal of contrarian perspectives, that there's academics do this too you know like when we we're talking about there not being you know it's a continuum because i i remember and it's a while ago so this feels like it'll be out of the controversy sphere to mention there was like a paper with some title again something like why pre-registration is useless or doesn't do oh yeah anything, right right right, right? right. Mm -hmm. and yeah. it was only two pages it was like a very short paper as well so it was but that that paper was written intentionally, provocatively, right? Mm -hmm. Like, well, I, I, in, and obviously, there's tons of metrics that show that it it is useful. And I, I feel the same thing applies in the case of like abandoning p-values or that mm -hmm. kind of thing. As when they're used appropriately, almost everyone agrees there's not mm -hmm. that much of an, an issue to use them, right? But you, if you take a very strong stance it kind of generates more attention and people mm -hmm. like being the the kind of yeah in an academic niche the the like peacocking like pickup artists <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, yeah that's a com uh, comparison so now we've compared bayesians <laughs> to toddlers pickup <laughs> artists <laughs> i have a i have a these I have a funny story about Bayesianism. Well, I think it's nice. funny because the very, the very after my first postdoc, I applied for a job, and my background was in psychology. And oh. e even though I'd gotten into applied maths and stuff, I, I, I hadn't. I, I'd only learned frequentist statistics. I had virtually, I heard the word Bayesianism, didn't mm -hmm. whatever, and um, and I, I applied for this job at the CSIRO, Australia's top. Uh, government research organization. And I was interviewed by the panel, one of whom was a guy called Bill Venables, who's um, you know he's part of the R core team, and uh, and mm, nice. and, and he asked me about uh, my um, where I stood on Bayesianism <laughs> during the job interview, <laughs> and I couldn't say I don't understand know what that is because I, I don't. So I bullshit. I bullshitted for about ten minutes. I just just made. I I, I said I spoke weasel words, vague language, you name it. And I think, and I got the job. So what can I say? I don't know to this day. Right. Oh wow! This guy's an idiot, but they gave me the job anyway. Who knows? I don't know. Or maybe I fooled them. To this day, I do not know. Yeah, but one thing I I really uh, think interesting. So for we should be clear first of all. Bayesians, most of them <laughs> who use it do a very good job. Some of them this. are decent people. Exactly. <laughs> also, but but maybe more importantly, it hardly matters in yeah. practice. You you've done everything. You've come up with your research question. You've developed your measures. You designed your study, and it's really all the way at the end. You're gonna put this number on it or this number on it, and those numbers, regardless of the ones you compute, will point in the same direction most of the time, and I mean 
95 plus percent of the time, you'll lead to the same statistical inference. So in a way, it feels like uh, a nice example of how a scientific field can get worked up about a topic that doesn't matter as much as measurement, for example. If you, we don't pay attention to measurement at all. We mess mm -hmm. it up. Well, at that moment, you can basically stop. You don't even have to collect the data, let alone analyze it, because what are you doing anyway? Mm -hmm. But no, all young people feel that this Bayesian versus frequentist thing is a thing they should spend cognitive resources on. Mm -hmm. People in the field will even be crazy enough to say, oh, but only if we, if we only switched to Bayesian statistics, all our woes would be <laughs> over. Yeah. And that part of it is what makes me so annoyed. Yeah. That, that you want to be a frequentist and just be quiet about it and yeah. do your thing, fine, mm -hmm. right? Yep. But this other part is what makes me speak out and say, well, how about we just use p-values well? That's what most people are trained in. It's probably the most efficient way to improve mm -hmm. things. And then stop thinking about it and focus on all these other components that are more mm -hmm. important. Yeah, it is oh, like yeah. that cargo called statistics thing, right? Yeah. Where it's they're mm -hmm. not even using it properly. Most of the time, it's like, oh, our prior is that our coefficients are distributed normally. And it's like, and why do you think that? Is any, we, no, we just put mm -hmm. a prior and pretend like it means something when it really doesn't. Yeah. So it's, yeah. yeah. I feel yeah, like you guys, uh, yeah. so, so, sorry, but you hinted at it. Whereas I, I think both you guys would agree that like measurement, unsexy. <laughs> yeah. Uncontroversial yeah. measurement is is probably the most important thing. And absolutely, Chris, mm -hmm. I'm always on to you about it, aren't I? It's um, yeah. <laughs> and you're right. This these things are hey, a big distraction. You want to now talk about Rush? <laughs> yeah. We finally Rush. made made it so that made you can really talk about Rush modeling yeah. now. Yeah, good, yeah. good for, you, for you. We made it. I'm going to shame Chris with some of his measures. I'm going to tell them, Chris. It's scandalous. <laughs> some of the measures that yeah, you use. I inherit measures from what people tell me to do. That's that's it. I'm a mere cog in their machine. But uh, yeah. uh, I feel like, to some extent, this issue is like when people use... <laughs> there are good reasons to talk about a Gaussian distribution, but there are times when I feel like people say that because they want to say something more complex than normal. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, I remember vividly discovering we had a Gaussian distribution that's like, isn't that the normal? This oh, it's the it's the CM, right? Okay, so yeah. Um, but it, it does feel that there's a I think everybody, especially that has experience uh like in social science research that is quantitative in nature, that which most of it should be, that the um when you go and you've done some analysis or thing and you want to find out what is the statistically correct thing to do in this edge case scenario you quickly mm. discover statisticians have argued both sides and mm. some a third statistician has said no they're all wrong and you in most cases people are selecting the citation and daniel i'm sure that your paper has done this sometimes like when people just take you, you cite you as saying, oh, you can do this for equivalence testing. Lincoln says that that will do it. And and that's it, right? They just want the justification for it because, mm -hmm. and in many cases, because it is involving a lot of effort or the actual statistics might end up being too esoteric. So mm -hmm. the issues that we can focus on, like having better a measurement about having appropriate sample size and and claims 
that mm-hmm. match the quality of the data are, mm-hmm. are much more tractable, I feel, than, than expecting that everybody will dramatically upgrade their statistics. It's not that you shouldn't invest in your statistical analysis, um, but just that there's a lot of other things that even if we had perfect statistical mm-hmm. analysis, it wouldn't solve. Yeah. I, I agree. And I spent most of the last decade actually trying to get people to improve their statistics, right? But I still agree that actually what I am doing is not the most important part of the research process to improve. Um, it is in a way some a little bit sad that we care so much about this last point. I don't know why. Maybe it has something to do, Shmriti sometimes mentions, our fondness of um, anything math-related that can make us look really smart. And maybe that's a part of it. So if you just dive into the statistics part a little bit and you do Bayesian statistics, then uh, you figure out, you know, you can show that you're really smart. And that's much more difficult to do with a good theoretical framework or with a good measurement development or something. You know, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But it feels that we're really focusing on, yeah, a thing which, sure, you can mess it up. You shouldn't. It's relatively easy not to mess it up too much so that it matters. Now let's leave it at that and go back to these other parts, I would say. Yeah. Matt, there might be a self-serving point <laughs> that I'm inserting here, but you know, we, we have this like tongue-in-cheek thing that we call the gurometer, right? Where we <laughs> yeah, yeah. rate the gurus on these 10 features which we have found recurrent amongst oh, the- I think this is a very, very important measurement tool that is clearly <laughs> extremely valid because it's, yeah, it's creating the field of gurology out of yeah. nothing. We, I've already oh, heard some right. gurus say like, hey, I'm not scoring very well on these guys' gurometer. Well, how can I increase my scores on it? I've already heard people want to improve their metrics. That's in not gurus space. <laughs> Are we that's, going to mention the cultural appropriation of the term Guru, uh, is, that ever, is that ever is that ever mentioned on this podcast? There is, that okay. has been mentioned, but only in emails. Um, and and then you had the sitar music at the start of the podcast. Oh, that is also that, that I kind of appreciate. That actually sounds kind of nice. But yeah, unfortunately, that, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, the term that, guru has like a very negative connotation in the Western context, but we still use it very respectfully. But uh, yeah, and the, stats guru, you know, that's a that's oh, a positive yeah. connotation, yeah. but. Yeah. One thing that I noticed is like the, the two things we get is on the one hand, like accused of scientism because we're putting numbers, right? And uh, like, oh, yeah. you guys are pretending it's a scientific instrument. Even if we have a big red flashy <laughs> thing said, this is not, you know, a validated scale or uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but on the other flip side, I I saw people say, oh, if you if you publish about this and you the, then you can do this. But actually, I think, Myself and Matt are probably amongst almost all academics, the people that have listened to the most like secular guru content. Hmm. And these things that we've identified, I would bet like my life savings on them being recurrent features that you find in this set that we're talking about. But people seem to think like if we publish a paper, which which we actually do attempt to do, but if we publish a paper, it's somehow means that it's more, you mm. know, like true or valid. So you have this weird thing where like, uh, and and we feel also, I think Matt, we as well, that like having an academic paper with our names attached to it and this concept of secular gurus, it makes it different. Even though we have a podcast with like three years of content 
on yeah. this topic, which is probably of more use and heard by more people than mm-hmm. uh, academic paper would be. Mm-hmm. 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 So well, maybe it gives point. it more credibility because it will go through the, the wonderful peer review process. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That we right. They're going to tip down our 10 factors to eat or some <laughs> horrible number. That's what they're going to yeah. do. Right? But, we did, we did it in paper I, form so it can work towards my H-index. That's the main thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it is, it is really interesting because um, it does limit the way that we think our contributions to science uh, work out. And I think definitely like a podcast um, is, I mean, so I was thinking back about last year, basically what I've done and like, I didn't publish that much this year um, for all sorts of reasons, but I was thinking, what did I do that I really enjoy? And I think, so I worked a lot on an open textbook uh, and there's a lot of material in there. Nobody will count it toward, I don't even think it is on my resume currently. You know, I didn't put it on my resume somewhere. I don't know where exactly because it's self-published, whatever. And the other thing is the podcast, which has a, a ton of, I think, interesting information, right? Mm. And and it's true that we don't consider those outputs, even though even in our little startup podcast that we just were uh, at around episode 20, I think, but even that listener uh, number of listeners is larger than I think an average, well, maybe an average, I don't know. I can't complain about reading, people <laughs> reading my papers, but <laughs> nevertheless, you know, it gets a lot of attention and uh, compared to some other academic output. Um, yeah, it's difficult to track, um, but it definitely plays into this point of the publishing system being a little bit of a scam, and we just do it to get a number, you know, like uh, get the respected output, whereas maybe the intellectual contributions we make in other ways are, uh, yeah, yeah, at least as impactful. And there's also, I mean, we just have a podcast coming out called Quantification, F-A-U-X, so like Quantification, <laughs> which I think you guys will enjoy, and it's really touching on this idea of like, once we start putting numbers on things, suddenly it seems like they're actually meaningful, right? Yeah, that yeah. it sort of means something scientific mm-hmm. and more rigorous than if we're just sitting here talking about these things, right? And people yeah. also in psychology talk about sort of physics envy, right? That we suffer from yeah. like, that we want to sort of put numbers on things and quantify things and we value sort of quantitative research a lot more than qualitative research. And it all goes into this idea of, yeah, if you can just, yeah, throw numbers around and do some stats on it, so that makes it somehow more scientific. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm just about yeah. to do a um, economic costing, as it happens, of gambling impacts um, for Victoria and New Zealand, and um, that's that's basically that. You know, a lot of the impacts are, are qualitative, are subjective, um, but mm-hmm. we we have to put these numbers on it because yeah. ultimately, you know, when the people are sitting in rooms, they can count the money that's coming in and gambling revenue. They yeah. need something to count over here to to, to weigh it up. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. but uh, a final question for you both. I might start with you, Smriti. Um, uh, you know, and the, the podcasting thing is a good lead-in because we want to know whether or not you're optimistic or pessimistic, both about like the state of like podcasting as just like a medium of communication. <laughs> there's obviously wonderful podcasts like yours and ours <laughs> that are contributing, making the world a better place. <laughs> then there's, on the other hand, there is the Dark Horse podcast. Yeah. <laughs> And and also academia generally, Smriti, you're you're going a bit of an unorthodox route, perhaps in terms of uh, how you're approaching heterodox. Heterodox, <laughs> yeah, you're in heterodox academy. You're you're not playing the game and maximizing your H index. Uh, so, did you feel good or bad about about the future there? Oh, that's that's a hard question. Um, well, about podcasting, I mean, podcasting, I definitely feel 
you know, good. But I think, broadly speaking, I think it does. I think it does more good than it does harm. There's lots of good stuff out there. And you can I mean, and I get to talk to wonderful, cool people like you get right. Like it's like I've just and I'm a Daniel through my first podcast. Right. So it's like it's just such a great way to listen to people having like smart, engaging people just having good conversations. So I think you it's like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, being in a water cooler and just listening to like just wonderful people talk and you can. And I also think that there's there's some value in hearing different perspectives when you can hear them, then you just read them. So there's also that bit of sort of more of a connection with. So I think podcasting in general, yeah, it's, it's been wonderful for me. I think that's great. I sometimes think I should just yeah give up everything and become a serial podcaster, start two or three <laughs> more of them. Um <laughs> <laughs> academia um i'm honestly not sure um one of the things i think i'm trying to like if i stick around like th the thing is i'm trying to figure out if i can help make things better um to move things in a good direction and if the answer to that is yes then i would like to stay because i i really i don't see myself doing anything else like i know i belong in a classroom um that much I know. Like I, I belong in a classroom, like as a student, as a teacher, as a researcher, ideally as all three. Um, but if, but if I, yeah. So I like, yeah. But but the way things are going, at least here, things are not looking that great. And to me, it's at this point thinking about: is there, where is the room for me to help make things better? And if I can find that place, then I would like to stay. And if not, then I would figure out, you know, I will take Paul Neal's advice and make an honest living selling shoes. Um, <laughs> that's my <laughs> that's my backup plan. But yeah. So, yeah. The answer is I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Daniel, yeah. how about you? Well, I think podcasting has basically replaced uh, the science paper of the 20s, you know, the 1920s, because in, you should read those science papers. It's just like, well, so I ran into uh, I ran into Matt in the corridor and we were both chatting about topic X and I just wanted to share with all of you some thoughts we had, which is about this and this and this, you know, I mean, really like those papers are just letters, often communication on a much more informal level. And we've lost that throughout science. So I think that's why we had blogs maybe a decade ago. They were pretty big. And now I think podcasts, because they replace this informal sense of communication, which many people appreciate, I think. So podcast, yes, very positive. About science, it really depends on whether Shmuriti is going to stay in science or not. That's basically it. Um, no, but for, for a good reason, actually, because I think people with that motivation who say like, okay, can I make things better? And I think that is the really the killer question that we have to confront ourselves with. Can we make things better with our science? Or are we just doing it to get the papers in and stuff? And I feel that the field needs to have this slightly uncomfortable um, conversation. What of the stuff we do is useful and makes things better? And what is the stuff that we're doing? Because I don't know, somebody is just telling us to do this kind of stuff. But we all feel that this is not it. And, and if we have that conversation and we're able to resolve it in some way, then I think people like Shmriti. And I think this is really, really important because sometimes I worry that the most talented people in our field are not motivated. That's my drive to do what I do. I sometimes feel the people that have the most talent for science, they take a peek, they look in to what we do. They're like, nah, no, I'm going to go this NGO route. I'm going to work for the government or I'm do doing this other thing. I'll feel I have more impact there. If we lose those people, we will lose out. But if we manage to think about, okay, how do we 
make sure that science is motivating for people who want to make the world a better place, then we can go in the right direction. And I would say just from my own perspective that the the kind of material that you guys put out and the attitudes that you present, setting aside the issue of the Dutch culture, I, <laughs> I, I think it is a really good illustration of like the proper attitude to science. And it's, mm. it's, it's nice to hear it discussed. And it, one of the things that I think is worth like keeping an awareness of is the fact that both of you and, and particularly you Smriti, are ambivalent or con considering about whether you can make a positive impact or that kind of thing. There's a lot of people that have a lot less ability and a lot less thoughtfulness, and they're not <laughs> at all <laughs> worried about that. Mm -hmm. So we need more people who feel ambivalent or a bit annoyed about things and, and like have a desire to see things get better. So I think you're both doing the Lord's work, so to speak. And <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and Daniel personally as well. Even without all your H-index and publications, the, the <laughs> MOOC that you have out helped me and mm. remains something that I enforce all undergraduates to at least hear about. I don't know if they take it, but um, <laughs> I, I think that that definitely will have a lasting impact. So yeah, your your podcast is, is great and we heartily Thank recommend you. it and appreciate you spending mm -hmm. uh, so long to be tortured by us thanks so much no, thanks so much wonderful. So thank thanks. you for having us yeah thanks guys i'm just disappointed we didn't get to item response theory but another day <laughs> another day <laughs> another podcast exactly. yeah. <laughs> you can come on our you. podcast yeah i've, I've, yeah. I've taken yeah. that's a promise all right i'm gonna hold you to that <laughs> You, yeah. you need to provide your private numbers after this so he can contact <laughs> you for follow-up chats. But, uh, but yeah, thank you both. Yeah, yeah thanks so much. Thank it was a lot of fun. Thanks. Very great. <clears throat> Bong! That was finished, Matt. We've, Bong, we've Bong. sorted out all the problems in academia. Yes. It's yes. all done. We finished the interview. We finished the interview. It's time to read the reviews of reviews. Well, that's right. I, you know, I normally like to get your feedback about which specific part of the interview you like the best, but I'll I'll uh, pass that. <laughs> this, I, I thought my, I think my own contributions were my my favorite. They part. were pretty good. They were pretty good this time. I <laughs> I, I I thought so as well. You know, Daniel and Smitty, Okay, but they were you, good, but you I were on really, fire. <laughs> you really impressed myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, review of reviews. Well, well, this week we don't have that many. I haven't canvassed for reviews recently, Matt, so no need people oh, to Chris, step up their I, game. I asked GPT-4 about our podcast, and I, this, I'm not going to talk about AI again. This is just a, a thing. Because I, and I, the reason I asked is not vanity. I just wanted to – it's a good little litmus test to check how sort of up-to-date and how comprehensive it is because of it, the extent to which it knows about our insignificant niche. existence. Yeah. yeah, super niche and quite recent kind of web presences. It's just, I don't know, for me it's a helpful – I presume you're turning on like the browsing mode. Yes, it now it's now enabled by default. I I probably want to try it again. Uh, I prefer to not it not browse and I just see what's in its brain, but um, I couldn't be bothered doing that because the funny thing was I I asked what people was 
thought about it and read the categories and it found some reviews. And um, it said, uh, there's mixed mixed opinions. (laughs) (laughs) Some people say that it's good, it's a lighthearted thing, an introduction to serious topics delivered in a lighthearted way. Other people, and then it said a lot of nasty things. And I was like, (gasps) thick news, Matt. We are 4.4 out of five stars on Apple. So, you know, don't get fake balance, ChatGPT. About six months ago, it thought we were conspirituality. <laughs> it it kind of had the two. It was like decoding the gurus is a podcast about secular gurus hosted by Matthew Ramsky. <laughs> oh, uh, so I've got it. I, I'm I'm going to read out ChatGPT's synthesis of okay. uh, of the reviews. Um, opinions on the contrasting personalities and styles of the co-hosts of Decoding the Gurus, Chris and Matt, seem to vary among listeners. Some appreciate the podcast as a much needed critique of gurus describing the hosts as engaging in good faith with a sense of humor, although they note the episodes can be long. Others <laughs> find this show, so even the fans find it. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's so, accurate. So that's the positive. That's cute. Others find the show biased with the hosts' voices coming across as arrogant and lacking humor. Lacking humor, Chris. Lacking uh, yeah, humor. that's not. Arrogant, that's, I'll accept, but arrogant, lacking I will humor, accept. come on. <laughs> criticizing them for being too liberal and not as rigorous as traditional media. It's the left. I I like this use of liberal because it's ambiguous. I think ChatGPT is using it in the phrase of we're too left wing. But if you speak to any true lefties out there, they would describe us as being too liberal as in the opposite direction. But anyway, um, another perspective describes the listening experience as a mix. There's another one. (laughs) As a, as a mix of crippling cringe and satisfying analysis. What? These, That's pretty. Who, who wrote that? <laughs> crippling cringe. It's got citations. Oh, right. That's not us. That's not us. Uh, okay. Yes. Carry on. I'm going to follow these citations. Now the citations are keeping, taking me somewhere at random. That's all right. Or, no, I, 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 I'm not interpreted that as we are showing the crippling cringe. And it's not us being crippling cringe. We that showcase crippling cringe. That must be yeah, it. That that's must it. Be that's it. it. That must be it. Yeah. Positive self-image retained. <laughs> yeah. um, well, we could treat well, that as our list of feedback if you like. Well, yes. I had one, though. I, I've got that. It's, it's very short. So it'll just compliment. <laughs> and it's. Uh, I, I feel it does echo some of the sentiments that ChatGPT raised. This is from Future 2-2 uh, from Austria not Australia. So it's uh, one out of five star. Good idea, but what a waste of time. Just your typical guys like to hear themselves talk for hours about things that could be said in a few minutes. (laughs) 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 You know, is there something to that? Is there? Well, you might. Yeah, yeah. You might say so. Yeah. yeah. A bit bit cruel, but he or she has got a point. So let's say, shall I boost us up, Matt? Will I give us one positive one, Dan? We do have one. Yeah, that one, because that one was mean and potentially true. So let's let's (laughs) on point. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So this is better, more accurate, and more kind. Elliot Toes. Uh, from Australia this time, an Aussie. Ooh, All nice. right. Nice. Uh, my favorite podcast in brackets, I think, spelled TH. Don't need the qualifiers. <laughs> Don't need the qualifiers. Favorite podcast. Full stop. At first, I thought this podcast was just a bit of fun to help me get through the Melbourne lockdowns. 
Now I think their fun, lighthearted way of deconstructing common manipulation traits with examples is quite invaluable, at least for me. I was raised in somewhat of a cult and hadn't thought about it much in my adulthood till this show. While I'm here, perhaps you could cover normal Finkenstein. I'm a fan of his and it'd be quite topical. I don't know who that is, but okay, we'll consider it. He's surely not galaxy brain, but perhaps you'd find him guilty in the lower dimensions of the chronometer. Uh, okay, she wrote to the bottom. You need more left-wing people anyway. Okay, now, bye-bye. <laughs> that's, that's it. It changed midway through. But I, I like that. There's a lot of information dropped in that. I was raised in a cult. I initially, you know, find it just for way fun, but I, I think there's more to it. And then, Invaluable, you know, Chris. Uh, His words or her words, not mine. Invaluable. Yep, yep. Not chat GPTs, not a synthesis of... It's just a robot. Colors. It doesn't even have a soul. Don't you don't yeah. listen to GPT. It it's a stochastic know. pirate, uh, yeah. but it's not pirating real things. It's yeah. not that's the, <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's just um, slapping words together, hoping they make some kind of sense. There's nothing behind the screen. Doesn't mean anything. No. Yeah. no. Well, so there you have it. But we don't leave yet, Matt. We find patrons. The people that are mm-hmm. on our Patreon. You thought you were gonna get away. No. Yep. They're here. They're crowding around the exit to prevent you from leaving. Um, and so I'm going to shout the white map. <laughs> I'm not just stalling until I find the list. That would be unprofessional. Now, I like to find conspiracy hypothesizers first because they're the easiest to discover. So here we go, Matt. A bounty of names. Jimmy Tullock, Jeff, Nick, Simon McLean, John Barry, Jan H.B., Matthew Tobias, Chris Topp, Alex Bowers, Dave Lavelle, Sean Job, Hasty Rewrite, Mr. Blyfoman, William Carpenter, Colleen Chandler, Ryan Goss, Joseph Whelan, Arabella Holsapful, Matthew Ross, Ben Mack, X, no, <laughs> Jack Anderson, uh, Chinook Sarkar, Ren Raku, Andrew Mack, Eric Feeling, Scott M, Evan Johns, and Doug Eric Boy. That's our conspiracy hypothesizers. Nice. There's a lot of you, and I love you all. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all. I feel like there was a conference that none of us were invited to, that came to some very strong conclusions, and they've all circulated this list of correct answers. Now, I wasn't at this conference. This kind of shit makes me think, man. It's almost like someone is being paid. Like, when, when you hear these George Soros stories, mm-hmm. well, he's trying to destroy the country from within. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses, Yes. Mm. Yeah. I love more Chris. I love him harder than Lex Friedman loves love. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Wow. That is hard. Um, I like them a lot. And now we have <laughs> revolutionary thinkers. They include Nick Angiono, Alex Nelson, Dexter King Williams, uh, Jandami, Lena Neld Robinson. Kevin Nyberg, Tristan Vahan Draper, Conal Dunn, Alexis Allen, Jeff Fitch, Stephen Cleghorn, 
Parvana Angus, Niels Christian Nilsson, <laughs> Kevin O'Rourke, Agnes Ziaka Z. God damn, I'm sorry. Um, Chris Horvat, Andy Hunt, F, and Daraka Laramone Hall. Bunch mm. of them, Matt. Mm. Good, good haul of them too. evolutionary thinkers. Love them too. Love them even yeah. harder than the hypothesizers, if that they were possible. They can get to Coding Academia. Like, just imagine the Huberman episode, all the comments that you really enjoyed about regressions and significance values, but extended for huge amounts of time. So, yeah, that's, that's what you get there, Decoding Academia. I'm usually mm. running, I don't know, 70 or 90 distinct paradigms simultaneously all the time. And the idea is not to try to collapse them down to a single master paradigm. I'm someone who's a true polymath. I'm all over the place. But my main claim to fame, if you'd like, in academia is that I founded the field of evolutionary consumption. Now, that's just a guess, and, and, and it could easily be wrong. But it, it also could not be wrong. The fact that it's even plausible is stunning. That'll it'll never cease to land. Well, it's, uh, that's, that's a keeper, that quote. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of, of keepers, Matt... We also like to find galaxy brain gurus, mm. 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 the highest tier who can come and talk to us and get our wisdom being directly interactive, like mm. the synchronous performance of decoding wisdom or not, <laughs> or not. Mm. They, can, they can just contribute and be nice in that respect and not, they don't have to. So... Today, they include Sonic Screwrider, pretty good name, mm -hmm. Alex Scorton, Scorton mm -hmm. um, and that's it, just two of them. Just mm. going to give them their own little cage, put them there on display in like my if, menagerie. Yep, <laughs> they could be in there in the box. Um, they, could talk, they could talk amongst themselves. Yeah, they're in the, the AI box that Lex is trying to work out with Yudkowsky how to defeat the tree aliens. So and that's what <laughs> you guys are. <laughs> what was the episode uh, of that? It's always going to talk its way out of the box. Uh, yeah, always. that's it. Uh, no, it's, it's made a code, Matt. You forgot. It's made a code, and it lives forever. And it's, uh, yeah, just yeah. it's already out of the box. It's copied itself a million times. So, mm. oh, Yudkowsky, Yudkowsky. Uh, can I just say, before I play the clip, I know this is, uh, whatever. You know, if you're still here, this is what you care for. Yudkowsky right? yeah. is, uh, I saw him going on about, some specific thing about AI and payment systems and cryptocurrencies, right? And like when we listened to him, he was morose, but because he can't tell the youth that there's any future because the world's going to be destroyed by the AI, very likely. And then he's on Twitter tweeting about like credit card repayment systems and stuff. Like it's just, it just. Yeah. It doesn't add up completely. Yeah. It's it's like it's like a cult leader who's forecast that the world is going to end and get hit by an asteroid in a couple of weeks, and they're busy negotiating their car insurance. Yeah, <laughs> so it's it's a, it's a strange thing. So yeah, I I don't know. Anyway, 
Kowski's a little bit of a joke. So let's play <laughs> the Galaxy Bring Guru clips. Anyway, here it is. We tried to warn people. Yeah. Like what was coming, how it was going to come in, the fact that it was everywhere and in everything. Considering me tribal just doesn't make any sense. I have no tribe. I'm in exile. Think again, sunshine. <laughs> yeah. That, that was one of the best um, illustrations of the Cassandra complex done by the sovereign nation. Oh, sovereign, sovereign nation 2030 yeah, me we, versus... Oh, that was classic. We, we <laughs> told them what was coming and how it would be in everything. And we saw I, I love that one where like he went into time, pa time travel paradoxes, kind of, you know, like 2020 me would <laughs> now think 2023 me is too extreme, but 2030 me would... <laughs> <laughs> just that is, yeah. yeah he's that actually an undervalued guru um old yeah. the sovereign nations man whose name currently escapes me you should go but, check it out if you haven't heard that episode it's good yeah yeah that, that's a funny one it, um so we're off map we're off out into the solar system to dance around our merry way our next guru you know we got choices i'm just pointing out that you Forced me to listen to Red Scare material. Um, and me? yeah, you, yeah, you, I give you a choice and you said, let's do something a bit different. So I listened to Red Scare material. You haven't yet. So maybe you should do that. <laughs> I'll spoil it for everyone. They're not secular gurus, but they are very annoying. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the, this is the thing. Do we make Matt listen to something that's very annoying? I, I, I vote yes. I feel like we've had some a few negatives. Like we've had a few, more than a few counterexamples. People that are not gurus that in our coverage recently. We should do someone who's definitely a full blown guru in the next well, episode. Can we change uh, it for Red Scare? Is it too late? I've listened to them, so it's it's too late <laughs> for me in that respect. But we are we are going to do them because I listen to them. But but we don't need to do them next. I say you're not going to like this description, Eli. I say we do Harris. I say we do Harris, Sam Harris. We get him off. I've clipped an episode already. It's getting older. Uh, he's gonna he's gonna complain about us. We're gonna have to talk to him. He won't mad. He's very open to criticism and there's there's various things. He went on with Chris Williamson, our old friend Chris. We might get some clips from him. Uh, just come on, let's do him. We, he's on the list of like big gurus. We gotta we gotta tick him off. All right. Well we could. We could. What about like Cernovich? Cernovich. He, oh, do you want a, like Cernovich or Stefan Molyneux? I, I know they're awful, but they're definitely gurus and we, we haven't covered them because All right. they're so horrible. Look, but, I'll treat you. Mm. I'll treat you with Sam Harris for Stefan Molyneux. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. We'll get the Red Scare. We'll get there as well. But, well, we'll keep them guessing. Who will be next? You'll find out soon. But the we'll next episode we'll will be a decoding. So, yeah, yeah. you, yeah. you heard it here first. Yeah, you'll yeah. see. You'll see. You'll find out. All right. Sounds good. Good plans. See you later, Chris. Arrivederci. Bye bye. Bye.
Okay. Yes. Uh, oh, Brett, <laughs> what are you doing? Hi, hi. hi. Uh, okay, you go there. No, okay, no, you go. go. No, no, you go. That's fine. Well, I was just going to say.